you're not going to see me on television, and you're probably not going to see me living in a surprisingly large beach house in Southern California. I'm just a schnook. Well, my best greetings to uh, those of you listening to Autobiography of a Schnook. This is your host, Sean, and uh, I'm a schnook. What can I say? And uh, this is the part of the episode when I just kind of ramble on. It's kind of like when you go to work and, uh, you know, you just kind of stand around chatting with people for a few minutes before you sit down and do your actual work. You know, you just kind of horse around for a little bit and you kind of fall into your groove, especially uh, when you come back from a weekend. That tends to happen. But that's what this is right now. I'm just kind of uh, falling in place and, uh, you know, just chatting, I guess. I'm recording this on Black Friday 2020, the day after Thanksgiving. For uh, those of you not in the uh, United States, that is American Thanksgiving, of course. I've been off for a week so far. Took the entire week off work because, well, originally I was just going to be taking... Tuesday through the end of the week. They give us off on Thanksgiving, which is Thursday, um, duh, and Friday they usually give us off too. But this year, because of COVID, the company has been kind of throwing in some extra mental health kind of days, and one of them was Wednesday, so I had Wednesday off, which I was going to take anyway. I had already scheduled Tuesday off because my wife Lisa and I, we were planning to go to New Jersey like we do every Thanksgiving to spend a few days with my mother-in-law. But because of COVID and all the dire warnings to stay home and the rising infection rates, we figured it would be best if we didn't go. So we just spent the week at home. And I took Monday off because I had some time left that I had to take. So got an entire week. So it's pretty nice. It's pretty nice. Um, And let me see, the last couple of days, Wednesday, uh, I ran a few errands. I wanted to go out, get some milk and get some lemonade and some other non-milk drinks. Uh, And while I was out, I figured, hey, I'm going to try. I've been talking about this for years. I wanted to try a croque monsieur that it's uh, spelled, by the way, in case you want to Google it, C-R-O-Q-U-E hyphen M-O-N-S-I-E-U-R. It's something that I learned about back in French one in high school. And uh, it came up in the book, in the vocabulary, and it's part of French culture. Those of you who don't know, it's basically a grilled ham and cheese sandwich, but it's done a special kind of way that we don't do here. And I'd always wanted to try one. I've never been to France. I don't know when I'm going to get to France, but I've never been there. But I was always curious. And uh, Mrs. Golf, our teacher, she said, oh, they're delicious. And it only recently occurred to me, geez, I live in a freaking huge city. I live in the second largest city. No, third largest city, pardon me. In the country, it's a melting pot. There's so many cultures in this town. Someone in this town's got to have a croque monsieur. Interestingly, a few years ago when Lisa and I were in Vegas, she found that uh, there was a restaurant in the Paris Hotel, and uh, it was called Mon Ami Gabi, or my friend Gabi, I guess. And she saw that there was a croque monsieur on the menu. So we went, and I had it there, and it was good, but there was something about it that didn't seem quite what I thought would be an accurate croque-monsieur. And um, I looked it up, and sure enough, they didn't do it the way that, say, all the other recipes say. Uh, It was weird. It was like basically kind of a toasted ham sandwich with cheese sauce poured on it instead of like a grilled cheese sandwich. And then we found out, wait a minute, Mon Amiga B, that is a 
restaurant owned by the Let Us Entertain You restaurant group, which is based not only in Chicago, but literally just a few blocks away from us. They're in our neighborhood. And it turns out there's a Mon Amiga B in Chicago. We've been there a couple of times, but they don't have the Croque Monsieur at that particular location. But I finally found a place. Uh, actually, I found a couple of different places that offer Croque Monsieur on the uh, menu. And by the way, those of you who don't know French, uh, Croque Monsieur, when translated into good English, um, literally, well, not literally, but at least equivalently means Mr. Crunchy. And there's also a Croque Madame, which I think is the same thing, but with a fried egg on it, which I, I do not do egg. So I've never had a Croque Madame, nor do I plan to. So I found a place in Old Town. Now, you've heard me mention the Old Town School of Folk Music before. Here's the thing, though. Those of you who are not familiar with Chicago, the Old Town School of Folk Music isn't actually an old town. It was founded in Old Town, but it moved since over the last 60 years of its existence. The thing is, when you think about it, like Lincoln Park School of Folk Music or Lincoln Square School of Folk Music doesn't quite have the same zing as Old Town School of Folk Music. But in the Old Town neighborhood, which is on the near north side, uh, I live on the far north side, there is a, uh, like a little cafe-style place called La Fournette. And I saw on their menu that they do croque messieurs there. So I was going to order one from there, and then Lisa said, you know what, order me one too. Uh, and call ahead and see what their soup is. So I called, and the woman who answered the phone had a very thick French accent, so that told me right away, okay, this is probably very authentic. And I asked what the soup is, and she said, chicken noodle and... It's, what? Uh, what was the other one besides chicken noodle? Oh, yes, that, that'd be... Or something, you know, you get the point. I was like, okay, that's, that's fine. And I know Lisa likes chicken noodles, so I got her chicken noodle soup. So after I went to get the milk and the lemonade... I drove down Lakeshore Drive, got off at, uh, well, actually, I got off at Michigan Avenue because it was so foggy that I literally couldn't tell that I had missed the North Avenue exit, which, well, LaSalle Drive, which goes to North Avenue, which is Old Town. So I went and exit south, which is fine because heading north, La Fournette is on the right, so it'd be easier to get to. So while I was out, I got some cash. So the exit that I took on Michigan Avenue, that's downtown, really. I saw a Chase Bank, so I pulled over without paying the meter and got some cash and got back to the meter just in time before the uh, meter people got to my car <laughs> when they were doing their rounds. So I got away with that. Uh, by the way, a little bit more about that in a coming episode, probably episode 28, actually. <laughs> And then I drive up Wells Street to La Fournette, and I park outside of La Fournette, and nowhere in Old Town is parking free. But I put the blinkers on, and I went in to pick up the food I had ordered. And there were three people there who spoke with French accents, so I felt really good about this being authentic. And after I picked up the food, paid for it, I said to the guy, Merci, monsieur, bonne journée, which means, thank you, sir, have a nice day. And then he responded to me, uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, the thing is, I spoke English to him before, but if you speak French without warning them that you don't speak French, they assume you speak French. And uh, my French is kind of rusty because I haven't really studied it since college, really. And um, yeah, I got to be prepared next time. But I'm glad to know that that place exists because... I know I have a place now where if I want to practice my French, it might be a good place to do that. 
Also, it's not far from where I take my bike to get serviced. So if I ever need to drop it off and then say, okay, can you come back in an hour? I'll be like, no problem. I'll go to La Fournette, maybe get a croque monsieur. And it was pretty good. It's uh, what they do with, a, uh, they use the standard croque monsieur recipe. It's, uh, it's a grilled cheese just like any American would kind of have, except it's got a bechamel sauce inside it. And the cheese is gruyere. And it's a thin layer of ham, and it's it is pretty good. And uh, Lisa liked it too, so uh, I'll probably go there again. And then on the way up, now here's the thing: I had ordered a book. Uh, it was uh, Dan Rather's book. Uh, oh, what the heck is it called? It, it came out a few years ago, and it's got really great reviews. And I borrowed it from the library and read the first chapter and loved it. So I decided to order it. And there's a store in our neighborhood called Women and Children First. And uh, those of you who watch Portlandia, if you're familiar with the Women and Women First bookstore, hand to God, that is based on the Women and Children First bookstore in my neighborhood. Uh, that is uh, a well-known fact, actually, among Portlandia fans. Uh, I've only seen a few episodes myself, and I, I, could, I couldn't get into the show. I highly respect it, and there's nothing wrong with it. It's just not my thing. But it's a local business, and uh, just one day Lisa said to me, if you want any books check with them first you know they're close because uh women and children first closed to the public voluntarily just to help prevent the spread of covid19 so they're closed for a while but they're still available for pickup services they said you know if you want a book from the store well we'll be happy to uh do carry out for you and if we don't have a book in stock we can probably order it so i ordered it and i got an email on tuesday saying the book came in so wednesday i decided okay while i'm out i'll get that book now, here's the thing, and this might get me in trouble, but that's okay because, hey, I'm just a schnook, okay? But while I was out, there was something that I had been thinking about for a long time. Besides trying a croque monsieur, there's something else that I had kind of maybe wanted to try. And uh, let's just say it's something that only became legal in this state for recreational purposes on January 1st of this year. And even out of curiosity, before I left work for Christmas last year, I asked our HR rep, I said, um, you know, there's something that's going to be legalized on January 1st. Um, would we get in trouble, like, say, if we were given a random drug test and uh, we tested positive for something that is now legal? And she said, oh, you mean you want to smoke pot? Oh, please don't even worry about it. <laughs> So, yeah, let's just say that on the way to uh, Women and Children First, I stopped off at a place called Dispensary 33. It's right by Women and Children First. Uh, they opened originally to serve medicinal patients, but now it's open, of course, for recreational purposes as well. And I decided, heck, it's legal. I might as well just try something. I've always been curious. Uh, the thing is, I don't smoke. I've never smoked ever because smoke bothers me. So... The other options, of course, are edibles, as most people know, and they also have what they call sublingual stuff, which means you just put a couple of drops under your tongue. But I wanted an edible. I always thought someday I was going to try the ganja, I guess, but it would be in the form of a brownie because I don't like to smoke. I, can't, I, I will not smoke. I won't. It always bothered me. But thing is, they I don't know if it's just this dispensary or most dispensaries don't sell it in brownie form. I guess maybe because it doesn't have as long a shelf life. So they have it in the form of, say, gummies and uh, other uh, edibles. And I saw on their website that they had this cookies and cream candy bar that was infused with uh, cannabis, as it were. 
So I decided to try that. And I did some research just to know what I was getting into. And I learned that um, the recommended dosage is 10 milligrams. And uh, some people respond differently to it. Some people aren't affected at all by it. So uh, try a higher dose if you want. But uh, here's what happens when you go into this dispensary. First thing you do is it's like a waiting room at a dentist's office. There's a desk in the entryway and they'll ask you, are you here for medicinal or recreational? And I told him, well, I pre-ordered, so I just want to pick it up. And, and then the guy told me, okay, well, if you could uh, sit at chair number two, we will call you in when we're ready for you. There, it's basically, I don't know if it's uh, COVID-19 precautions or it's just the way they always do. So I sit down and I check my email, and before the progress bar even started filling up, they called me in. So it wasn't a long wait at all. And I go in, and I go to the counter, and there, is a, there are a lot of people in this, a lot of customers with big smiles on their faces. <laughs> and the place freaking reeked of weed. Gee, I wonder why. And I told the guy, I said, hey, I pre-ordered, and I'm picking up, and I gave him my name. And every third word out of his mouth was, man. Oh, sure, man. Yeah, hold on a sec. I'll go get that for you, man. And so he goes, gets the thing. Okay, here you go, man. You know, you have any questions? And, and I told him, I said, I'm a total virgin at this stuff. You know, I've never indulged. I'd never tried it before. Uh, I, I've, so the recommended dose is 10 milligrams, right? And he said, yeah. He said, uh, this candy bar, you just break it off. It's in squares. So just break off one square and try it. And he said, give it two hours before you start feeling any effects. And if you don't get the high you want, then just take it slow. Try like half of another square, try 15, you know, that, which will boost the dosage to 15 milligrams. And if you don't like that, then try another five. And, you know, he said, just whatever you do, just take it slow because you don't know how you're going to react. So man, <laughs> so I was on my merry way. I took the candy bar, went over to women, children first, got the book but it was it's interesting how they do things there because uh, you text them you say hey here's my name here's my order number i'm gonna be there in 10 minutes and then you'll get a response back saying great come on by and you go in their parking lot in the back of the store and outside under their awning there's a table that has your order in a paper bag with your name on it so i went there picked it up and um then i was on my merry way i went home now, I wasn't sure how the other person in my marriage was going to react to uh, certain items that I purchased. So I just flat out said, I said, hey, while I was out, you know, that I, I, I said, I said I was going to get a croque monsieur because I finally wanted to do something that I've been talking about for a long time. There's something else I've been talking about for a long time that I wanted to try. And I figured, what the heck? I'm an adult. I can try it. It's legal. So I took out the candy bar and I showed it to Lisa and I said, you're welcome to try some of this too, if you want. And she just kind of rolled her eyes, laughed and said, oh, geez, <laughs> she's like, whatever, dude, whatever. <laughs> so that was that. So I put it in the fridge. The guy at the dispensary told me, he said, oh yeah, put it in the fridge. You'll, it's, it'll taste really good. And it's easy to break apart if it's refrigerated. He said it should last a while in the fridge. So. So yesterday, Thanksgiving, um, after I called my family with uh, the Thanksgiving phone call, and I figured, okay, now might be a good chance to do this. I'm not going to be going out that requires using a vehicle, just maybe take the dog out a couple of times. And so I decided now is the time I try the item that I bought at the dispensary. And Lisa said, well, we have a lot of food coming up, so 
if this stuff makes you hungry, then that'll be good. So, so at 1224, I took the cookies and cream bar out of the fridge and broke off a square and here goes nothing, you know, and I put it in my mouth and it, if you've never smelled marijuana, basically it smell it's, it's not a pleasant smell, at least in my opinion, it smells like burning rubber and the candy bar tasted like that. The square that I broke off tasted like that with a little hint of cookies and cream. If you ever had a Hershey's cookie and cream bar, that's what this tasted like, but with a crap ton of a marijuana scent and taste to it. So right away, I didn't like what I was having because I didn't like the taste. And then I realized, oh, I swallowed this, so there's no turning back now. So, you know, I just passed the time I watched TV with Lisa and just kind of noted the time. So about 2.24, I should start feeling the effects. So I think it was around 2.45. I, mean, I wasn't really feeling much, but then around 2.45, I suddenly had this dizzy spell that lasted about 20 seconds. Then I felt lightheaded for about another minute. And I was like, whoa. But then that was about it. And then about half hour later, same thing happened again, except it felt like somebody pushed me from behind. And I'm thinking, oh my God, this is weird. And that was really it. That was, that was the most I felt, but it was definitely something I didn't feel before. And then, you know, a couple hours later, I was kind of feeling a, a much more clear headed. And, uh, thing is though, I, I gotta tell you, I, I didn't like it. I, I just didn't like it. It just wasn't my thing because it didn't feel like my body should have been doing that. Uh, one thing I have to say though, is it does make you feel very relaxed. And I felt that if I just curled up anywhere and closed my eyes, I could fall asleep really easily. So it might be a useful thing. Like if you're feeling really, really ill and crappy and you just want to go to sleep, that might help. But another thing happens that, um, I eventually got a headache and it wouldn't go away for the rest of the day. In fact, like when I went to bed, it started getting worse and worse and worse. And I'm thinking it was a side effect because well, I've mentioned in a previous episode how I love San Francisco. And every time we go to San Francisco, we do spend uh, an afternoon in Haight-Ashbury. And let me tell you, in Haight-Ashbury, there's a lot of, well, smoke in the air. And it gives me a really nasty headache. So I really think that that's what uh, pot might do to me. It'd, it'd give me a headache. And I was like, yeah, I don't really need to do this again. Uh, especially, I didn't like the taste. I didn't really like the buzz. And it wasn't really a huge buzz. It was, it, I mean, Lisa said, yeah, I'd probably get a bigger buzz from drinking beer when I grill, which I don't really. I don't get any buzz at all from that. But um, yeah, it was, it was basically just a buzz. But it was enough of a buzz that told me that it's not so much that I thought I shouldn't go out and operate heavy machinery. It's like, man, I don't want to, <laughs> but I mean, I w it didn't really affect my thinking or anything. Cause you know, we were watching TV. I was able to pay close attention to the plots and everything. And, but it just wasn't worth it. It, it really was not. And I'm probably not going to be doing that stuff again in any form. In fact, I'm probably just going to throw out the rest of the bar, but yeah. So that was my adventure for Thanksgiving. And then there's Black Friday today, which is also Record Store Day. And there was an item that a couple of stores near me, yeah, I'm blessed. I live within walking distance of one record store, or if I don't mind walking two and a half miles one way, which I've done before, 
there's another record store further out that I love, Lori's Planet of Sound. But in my neighborhood, and I know I've mentioned this store too, Rattleback Records. And uh, they published their record store at A-List, and there was an item on their list that I wanted. It was uh, Dr. Demento's um, earliest novelty records, I think it's called. Uh, I don't have the record right by me, but it's a two-record set containing comedy records that go back to, like, super early, like, just after the cylinder record times. And I thought that'd be a really fascinating record to own. So I was like, yeah, I'm going to see if they have it. And uh, I set my alarm for 8 a.m. so I could get down there. Uh, What I did last record store day, I did again this time. It's in a neighborhood where parking might be questionable. It might be hard to find a space. And if you do, you got to pay for it. So I got my bike and a metal basket that I uh, hang on the side of it um, off a rack on the back. It's not really big enough to hold many records, but if you angle like a few records a little bit, they fit across the uh, the diagonal of the basket. So I put that on my bike, pulled up right in front of the store, locked up the bike, and there I was in line. The line stretched pretty long too, and there was uh, six feet of distance between everybody too. So I'm wondering, oh man, is this a day that after here that I'm going to find out I have to hightail it to Lori's to see if they have what I want? But uh, what they do at Rattleback for Record Store Day is they, uh, everybody who's in line, they hand out a printout of what they have for Record Store Day, and you put an X next to the titles that you want. So I put an X next to the Dr. Demento title, and there are a couple of other things that I figured, yeah, you know what? What the heck? Uh, George Harrison, uh, My Sweet Lord, backed with Isn't It a Pity, just as it was in 1970 or 71. And it was on clear vinyl. It was on colorless clear vinyl. And it was a reissue, apparently, of a foreign release. And by foreign, I mean non-European. I don't remember. I think it was a South American pressing or something that it was a reissue of. So I put an X next to that. And I saw, I didn't even know about this. Hooray for Santa Claus from the movie Santa Claus Conquers the Martians on a seven-inch single. And it was two different versions. It was the version from the movie and a cover version. And it came with a DVD. Now, I I don't know what's on the DVD yet. I don't know if it's the movie Santa Claus Conquers the Martians, but it doesn't matter because I I wanted the record. And it's on green, excuse me, it's on Martian green vinyl which from what I can tell is just a plain old green color that you can see right through, and it's really cool. So I got that, so I put an X next to that. So I got into the store, and the guy kind of running things took the list, and he called out to the guy behind the counter. He said, okay, we need the George Harrison, uh, the Milton Delug Santa Claus Conquers the Martians, and the George Harrison record. And they had all three, so yes, I didn't have to... uh, run over to Lori's after that. Although I admit I was disappointed because I would have loved to go to Lori's because I love that store. I love Rattleback too, but I also love Lori's. <laughs> so I get those records, I buy them. And on the way out, I had remembered that Lisa said to me, if you can see if they have any Esquivel on vinyl. Now, if you don't know who Esquivel is, I mentioned him about a year ago in this podcast. Uh, he was a band leader from the late 50s, early 60s, who pioneered a genre that is now called space age bachelor pad music. And it's 
jazzy, loungy, ultra tacky music, and it is freaking hysterical. Uh, if you ever see the movie Beavis and Butthead to America, there's a scene toward the end of the movie when Beavis excuses himself to go into Tom Anderson's um, RV. And during that scene, there's a song in the background playing called Mucha Muchacha, and that is an Esquivel song. So on the way out, I happened to walk down the aisle where the jazz records are, and I saw the E subdivider. Now, I didn't know how Esquivel would be classified, but I guessed that maybe it would be jazz. And I flipped through the E section, and there was a Esquivel record. A reissue, well, maybe not a reissue, but a new compilation from two years ago on colored vinyl. Now, at this point... Rattleback had opened early, but just for record store day specific reasons. Like if you were there, it meant that you were specifically getting something on the record store day list. But I yelled over to the counter. I said, hey, can I get back in line? And, uh, and the lady looked around. She said, you yeah, know, it's, it's not too busy. So go right ahead. It's okay. So I was like, yes. And so I bought the Esquivel record and it's on yellow vinyl, by the way. And Lisa was really happy to see that. And uh, we spent the day basically getting the living room ready for Christmas. I was dusting the shelves, and uh, we decided now's a good excuse to uh, get the turntable going. So I listened to the My Sweet Lord single. Sounds really nice. Uh, It fits really tightly on the 45 ring, though, so uh, that was kind of weird. I was a little bit worried about that, but no, it plays back really well. And after that, we switched to all Christmas music. So we listened to The Ventures Christmas record on Sundays, and it sounds fantastic. And then we listened to the Phil Spector Christmas record on Sundays, which also sounded fantastic. Sundays records sound amazing. They really do. That's a great reissue label. And uh, we listened also to the Beach Boys, Herb Alpert, and uh, the Vince Guaraldi trio, their Christmas music. And uh, it was a fun listen. And then we took the dog for a walk and tried to get a uh, picture for our annual Christmas card. And uh, we'll see how that worked out. But in the meantime, probably going to watch some TV, so I figured this would be a good episode, a good excuse to talk about things that I watch on TV and have watched over the years. So, more about that in just a few seconds. There's more to me than just the Beatles, Brian Wilson, and various forms of computer nerdery. For a long time, I was a television nerd, too. I don't really watch a ton of TV these days, although the TV is usually on, I admit, but mainly as background noise if we're not listening to music. It's usually The Office. God knows Comedy Central shows it frequently enough. The thing is, during the years when the Atari 2600 was a big thing, I was playing Atari all the time. My schoolwork very seldom suffered, but you can bet that if I brought home, say, a a quiz that I bombed every once in a while, The one and only thing that my parents would blame it on was Atari, but it seemed that it was always my most recent interest that would get the scapegoating. I got a bad grade once in seventh grade, and my mom blamed it on, and I quote, the damn monkeys. Eighth grade, it was two things, basketball and the Beatles. And so help me, this is true. When I was in high school, often when I'd get home after school, I'd chill out for a bit by having a drink of water or something and watching Jeopardy before I continued on with the rest of my day. Now, where I went to school, if your grades were looking low by the middle of the quarter, they'd send a progress report home. Well, I got a progress report in physics my junior year. My dad blamed it on Jeopardy. 
Yeah, that's right, Dad. My grade slipped because I spent a half an hour, maybe every day, watching a TV show in which you actually learn stuff. By the way, the tragic loss of Alex Trebek was just a coincidence with this little Jeopardy story. I actually wrote the script about two weeks before his death. It's just weird how things like that happen. But yeah, Jeopardy was really quite a regular part of my life. One of the first pieces of software I ever bought for my Commodore 64 around 1988 or 1989. Uh, yeah, that's late for a Commodore 64 newbie. But one of the first software titles that I bought was Jeopardy. The box had the Commodore 64 version and the PC version. The weird thing was the uh, famous Jeopardy theme music wasn't used. It had another piece of music. And that same alternate music was also used in the Coleco Atom version. The PC version used the so-called Think Music theme, though, uh, which... Why would one game in the box have that, but the other game wouldn't? I don't understand. Other than that, the games played identical. And when the Jeopardy book came out in the 90s, I made sure that I pounced on it as soon as we got it at the library. Uh, as you regular listeners know by now, I worked there. And it occurs to me that I have not one, but at least two friends who actually were on the show in the last several years. And I still refer to Jeff Probst as the host of Rock and Roll Jeopardy and uh, not the host of Survivor, mainly because I hate those so-called reality shows that are just extended game shows, but um, I digress. From Christmas 1982 through roughly the spring of 1985, Atari was the one and only thing that my parents saw as a factor in anything not wonderful that would happen in my life. My punishment for the slightest offense, including giving my brother a dirty look? No Atari for two weeks. And by Atari, my parents meant no video games, period. Which meant that I couldn't use my Vectrex, and when we went to the Kroger, I couldn't even hang out up front and watch people play the arcade video games next to customer service. One time when I was under that two-week punishment and I was outside playing, my brother decided that he wanted to play some Atari. So my parents made him close the shutters on the windows so that I couldn't watch him from outside. Well, one day I turned the TV on to play Atari, and one of my parents, I don't remember who, said, Oh, for God's sakes, you're playing Atari again? Uh, no, no, not at all. Just gonna watch a little TV. <laughs> and somehow because of that, I ended up addicted to watching television. Of course, that included the cartoons that everybody my age watched back then. Tom and Jerry, the Flintstones, the various Warner Brothers and Terry Toons cartoons. All classics, but running in afternoon reruns in perpetuity. During the summer, I'd watch game shows in the morning, including Tic-Tac-Doe, The Joker's Wild, Scrabble, Super Password, and of course, as would anybody who has a soul, The Price is Right. When we moved to Joliet and ended up with a much better cable TV package, I'd also watch reruns of the older game shows on the USA Network, including Card Sharks, Name That Tune, and Face the Music. Sometimes I'd watch Jeopardy in the afternoon. At night, I'd watch sitcom reruns, Different Strokes, What's Happening, and Give Me a Break among those on WFLD close to dinner time, and I'm sure there were some other TV shows with exclamation points in their titles that I might have watched. After dinner, Nick at Night reruns of Dragnet, My Three Sons, and Laugh-In were among my post-meal watching. Later at night was what quickly became my favorite show, The Honeymooners. We didn't have a VCR back then, so I would actually record the audio of the shows to audio cassette, and I'd listen to the episodes all the time. I do that with a lot of TV shows, actually, but I was so into The Honeymooners that when I saw Back to the Future for the first time, I knew 
right away that it was impossible that the Baines family would have been able to watch the episode called The Man from Space live in November 1955 because it didn't air until December 1955. The Honeymooners kind of sort of led me to I Love Lucy and The Lucy Show. During those days, I had become a huge Bill Cosby fan. Uh, Yeah, it's kind of hard to have to admit that these days, but back then, Bill Cosby himself aired on HBO all the time, and that got me hooked on The Cosby Show, so I'd watch that whenever possible. Oh, by the way, here's something that I have to bring up. I don't think I ever mentioned this on the podcast, but the very first time I saw The Cosby Show, I remember what episode it was. It was when it first aired. It was the episode when Rudy was obsessing over an action figure she had called Mega Man, and she wanted to get all the accessories and stuff. I just, it was, whatever episode that was, that's what it was. But I swear, and this this is true, nobody can corroborate this, but when I watched that episode, when the Huxtables were dancing over the opening credits and the beginning of the show, the song that was playing was The Power of Love by Huey Lewis and the News. I swear that's what it was. It was not the the uh, uh, that saxophone music that the, the theme song that was usually opening the the show. And because that was the first time I ever saw the Cosby Show, I thought the Power of Love was the theme song, and I thought it was interesting that they used Huey Lewis in the news. Like, why would Bill Cosby do that? But uh, anyway, I uh, just wanted to uh, uh, mention that. Uh, and also, uh, around that time, they were showing reruns of the Bill Cosby show, the sitcom that he had in the 70s, where he played a uh, gym teacher named Chet Kincaid. This was also around the time that music videos were all the rage. However, we didn't get MTV, well, until we moved to Joliet, but when we lived in Bourbonnet, though, no MTV. If I remember correctly, to get MTV would have required a one-time charge on the cable bill, but my parents weren't going to go along with that. I was able to see music videos, though. We did have HBO, and those of you who subscribed to uh, HBO back in the 80s, you might remember that between the movies, they'd often have a segment called Video Jukebox, in which they'd show a music video or two. Also, sometime around 1984 or 1985, You know what? It had to be 1984. Um, It had to be, and I'll tell you why in a sec. There was a new UHF channel that popped up that was nothing but music videos, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And the cool thing was, they would usually show the videos unedited. The big example I remember is We're Not Gonna Take It by Twisted Sister. Still one of my favorite music videos ever. And that's why I say it had to be 1984, because the Stay Hungry album came out in 1984, and that's how I first was turned on to Twisted Sister, by seeing this music video. Now, most airings of that video would start with that kid in his bedroom rocking out to I Wanna Rock, but the version that the UHF channel showed started all the way back at the dinner table, with Niedermeyer saying, Pass the carrots, please. Thankfully, when we moved to Joliet in the summer of 1986, our much better cable package included MTV. My TV watching did fade away to something much more reasonable eventually. Part of it was my parents trying to force me to be more social, albeit with mixed results. Uh, Yeah, I guess I have a lot of friends now, but I still consider myself an introvert who hasn't really been negatively affected by spending more time at home thanks to the pandemic. Also, given that my parents were paying tuition for me to go to the Catholic school, I knew that if my grades slipped, they would use that as reason to make me go to a public school. We're paying good money for you to go here. You damn well better get good grades. And I, 
I did not want to go to the public school. The public school system in Joliet sucked at the time from uh, what I gathered and from what others who went through it tell me, yeah, I was right. Mind you, I still had my share of television watching. As with everyone else, I had shows I didn't miss. When I was in high school, I seemed to remember home improvement was a can't miss for me. And I seem to remember that back then, you either watched Home Improvement or Seinfeld, but not both. Although I don't think the shows were ever up against each other. Now, I always liked Jerry Seinfeld's stand-up comedy. I think he's a brilliant comedian. But I gotta be honest, I never cared for the sitcom. Uh, My wife says it's because I'm not from the New York area, but that's not true. I knew plenty of Chicago suburbanites who loved Seinfeld. And by the way, while I'm kind of on the topic of Home Improvement... There's kind of an ongoing plot hole that I don't know if anybody else thought about. Now, the show is about Tim Taylor, who works for Binford Tools. He started out as a traveling tool salesman until Binford sponsored a local cable access show called Tool Time, and they made Tim the host of that. Characters kept referring to Tool Time as a low-rated cable access show. Again, friends, it was a low-rated show. Well, here's the thing, though. If his show was not doing so hot in the ratings, then why was Tim always recognized when he was out in public? Oh, it's a tool man! It's, everybody recognized him! Everybody! How could it have been low rated? <laughs> anyway, sorry about that. Um, for the longest time, my favorite TV show was The Simpsons. I was a fan of The Simpsons back when it was still an animated interstitial on the Tracy Ullman show. Damn it, will you just release those episodes on DVD already? Ugh! Anyway, sorry. Uh, On weeknights at bedtime, I'd watch two back-to-back All in the Family reruns that one of the channels showed every night. I do remember when that show was still new and how my parents always said that Archie and Edith reminded them of my grandparents, uh, that is, my mom's parents, with my grandfather, the Mad Russian, being Archie, although I would argue that Archie was Jesus Christ compared to my grandfather, and my grandmother being his long-suffering wife constantly waiting on him hand and foot. That was accurate. Now, the shows that I've mentioned don't by any means include all the shows I watched regularly, but it's because of that TV watching that I can name stars of these shows off the top of my head, usually to uh, my wife's horror. Yeah, she probably doesn't want to be part of my life that was Sean as a 10-year-old, but I also learned a lot about U.S. pop culture. Heck, my parents were shocked that I had ever heard of Mercurochrome. Because of the Honeymooners, I heard of Asbury Park, New Jersey, as a preteen a good 13 years before I moved to Ocean Grove, which borders Asbury Park to the south. Because of Name That Tune and Face the Music, I can identify Going Out of My Head and the theme from the Poseidon Adventure in only four notes. My first time hearing the Bo Brummels was because of the Flintstones. Imagine, Wilma, the Bo Brummels stones in person! Of course, because of my TV watching, that became the next scapegoat. If I bombed a test or forgot to do a homework assignment, it was because of TV. And if I were given the no TV for two weeks punishment, that would also apply to playing Atari, because of course, in order to play Atari, you have to turn on the TV. But that didn't stop me from popping in audio cassettes I'd record of TV shows. In fact, there was one time I had on tape my mother yelling at me when she called us to the dinner table, but I wanted to watch just the last few minutes of the show and get it on tape. You could hear on the tape... Get your ass upstairs and eat! I'm sick of this damn tele- And then the tape cuts off all of a sudden. To this day, there are some episodes of TV shows whose dialogue I can recite along with because of that weird part of my life in the early 80s. TV watching is just part of life, I guess. 
Nowadays, it's not what it once was, what with streaming. In fact, Lisa was telling me that her students have virtually no knowledge of network or cable TV, except for sports. Basically, if it doesn't stream, they don't know about it. But because TV is part of life, and at least in my life has been pretty ubiquitous, I should talk about it. Now, quite often, people talk about their favorite movies, their favorite bands, their favorite albums, favorite books. But I'm going to get a little bit more granular. I'm going to talk about my favorite TV show episodes specifically. That is what I consider to be the greatest episodes of any shows ever. I don't really have a single favorite TV show necessarily. And in fact, one of my very favorite shows is Parks and Recreation, but I don't have a favorite episode of that TV show. I'd watch The Monkees religiously back in the 80s, and I still watch it a lot now, and I still don't have a favorite episode of that either. So for some TV shows, no favorite episodes. But in no particular order, here are my favorite TV show episodes ever, at least as of November of 2020. The first one that I want to mention is uh, rather timely, given the time of year that I'm recording and uh, releasing this episode. The Fry Turkey Fry episode of Alton Brown's show, Good Eats. This episode first aired on the Food Network on November 12, 2006. Now, I usually don't watch cooking shows because I, I really don't like to cook unless it involves a charcoal grill. Well, okay, I gotta admit this. Lisa and I did religiously watch the original Iron Chef when it aired on Food Network back in the early 2000s. It was amusing. It was educational, but it was also very entertaining, especially with its predictability. Among the judges on every episode, there was some random skinny ingenue whose critique on the food would always be, Mmm, good. Or you'd have that fortune teller who hated everything. And of course, there'd frequently be a challenger chef specializing in old-school Japanese cuisine. And whenever they had one of those chefs on, his goal was to teach neo-Japanese iron chef Morimoto a lesson about what Japanese food is supposed to be like. And of course, Morimoto would always beat the crap off of those chefs. But anyway, back to Good Eats. The reason I'm pretty familiar with this show is Lisa watches it a lot. And Alton Brown is nerdy and entertaining. And I kind of see it as uh, basically a food equivalent to Mythbusters in terms of how things are laid out and worked out and everything. Just that level of entertainment. I love Mythbusters. And hey, what do you know? Alton Brown was on Mythbusters once. But I think his nerdiness and his ability to entertain really shine through in Fry Turkey Fry. For those of you who haven't seen it, in Fry Turkey Fry, Alton Brown painstakingly shows you how to deep fry a turkey in the absolute safest way possible. It's just such a fascinating episode. He rigs up a pulley system on a ladder, and he goes through all kinds of basically over-preparedness. It still probably doesn't give you something that's 100% guaranteed to be safe, but if you got to do it, that's the safest way to do it. Assume a safe distance and slowly deposit. <laughs> You'll be talking soon, Mr. Turkey. Oh, yes. <laughs> Another episode that I love to talk about whenever favorite TV moments comes up, the Dick Van Dyke show, It May Look Like a Walnut, which aired February 6th, 1963. That was the second season of the show. And a fun fact, by the way, if you watch Dick Van Dyke show reruns, you might notice that the episode title shows up on the screen during the opening credits. Well, this episode was the first time that they ever did that. That was the first time a Dick Van Dyke show episode actually put the name of the episode on the screen. Now, in this episode, Rob watches a sci-fi movie, and then he has this weird dream that Kolak from the planet Twilo 
is plotting to use mutant walnuts to steal thumbs from all the Earthlings, along with their imaginations, in an attempt to put a stop on Earth's technical advancement. Kolak has an uncanny resemblance to Danny Thomas, who just happened to be the scheduled guest on the Alan Brady Show that week. There are two things in particular that make this episode so epic. For one thing, to make it appear that Rob's thumbs were stolen, Dick Van Dyke had to keep his thumbs folded down while on camera. And it is just so hysterical how obvious it is. Because uh, there are certain times when you can see from the camera angle, you can see like the tips of his thumbs because he wasn't moving carefully enough or something. And that was hysterical. And the other thing that made this episode so amazing... There's a scene in which Rob goes home and he's looking for Laura and he opens the closet and then a whole crap ton of walnuts spills out with Laura sliding it out in that pile of walnuts. And it's one of the most brilliant scenes I've ever seen. And something I have to mention about this episode and other Dick Van Dyke episodes, you can tell when Rob is having a dream because Laura acts like a complete wacko, like a psychopath, practically. Laura, Laura, you gotta help me get my thumb back. Hit me, hit me and wake me up. Darling, I'll hit you with pleasure, but it won't get you back your thumb. Well, come on, hit me, hit me before I grow another pair of eyes. And one that I have to mention, hey, I mentioned before that The Honeymooners was one of my favorite TV shows. Well, this Honeymooners episode aired 51 years to the day before Fry Turkey Fry, so that would be November 12th, 1955. It's called Better Living Through TV. That was from, well, I was going to say the first season, but there was only one season of The Honeymooners as a standalone show. But in this episode, an acquaintance offers Ralph extra stock of a kitchen multitasking tool for a bargain price. So he buys up all the stock, firmly believing that he can sell all those tools at a higher rate and make a quick and easy profit. So he gets Norton involved, and the two buy some airtime at a TV station to present a live commercial for the product. Basically, a short infomercial, if you will. And the product was now called the Handy Housewife Helper. Well, you can probably guess as to how successful their attempt is. <laughs> just like with, uh, it may look like a walnut. I think there are two things that really make this episode just stand out. First of all, the obvious ad-libbing. There's a scene in which Ralph and Norton are rehearsing their commercial. And somebody moves the, uh, the little handy housewife helper. Well, by the way, another sign that there's some ad-libbing going on. They kept changing the name of the Handy Housewife Helper different times throughout the episode and not realizing it. Not only will this helpful housewife, Happy Handy, do all the work of these old instruments, but it will also do them 100% better. But there's one time when one of them moves the tool and then something flies out of it. And you can tell from the camera angle when Jackie Gleason walks over to pick it up that it was totally unscripted. Like, he practically walks to the front of the stage he bends over, picks it up, and looks at it. And the audience is cracking up big time. They, they actually applaud him for this. He looks at the piece that flew off, and then he looks at Norton, and he says, Maybe we ought to say something about spear fishing. The other thing, and I don't know why, but... And later on in the episode, during the live airing of the commercial, Ralph hurts himself, and he... If you've ever seen, say, three or more Honeymooners episodes, you have seen what happens to Ralph when he hurts himself. He carries on big time, screaming, shaking his hand, walking all over the place. Well, that happens here. And uh, during his screaming and walking around all over the place, shaking his hand, he actually knocks over a wall on the set. 
uh, it looks like it was totally intentional, but from what I have read, that was not intentional. That w- Either that was ad-libbed or that was just an accident that they had to go with, because The Honeymooners was aired live. They didn't shoot it first and then air it later. It was live. The other thing about this episode that just cracks me up every single time is part of their script in the commercial involves the question, can it core a apple? Just that phrasing, a apple instead of an apple, and how they ask, can it core a apple? I will admit, it's true that it can chop on a knife better, but can it core a apple? Certainly it can core a apple. <laughs> he will core a apple with an old implement, ha ha, and I will core a apple with the new implement. Something about that just cracks me up every freaking time. To me, that is the definitive Honeymooners episode. Some people think it's the third episode of the series called The Golfer. No, Better Living Through TV is better. And uh, jumping once again, uh, almost 51 years in the future, Scrubs, my favorite episode of Scrubs from season five, airing January 24th, 2006, My Way Home. It's basically a giant huge reference to The Wizard of Oz. I'm not a fan of that movie, but I still love how this episode was written. It's just brilliant. Inside Sacred Heart Hospital, there are some lines painted on the floor. Kelso's starting a new line system to help people get around. Green's gonna go to the smoker's lounge, blue to the ICU, yellow to all the exits. Weird that a hospital would have a smoking area. As quick a plot summary as I can give you. JD, basically the main character in the show. He's a doctor. He's an ER doctor. They page him and he has to come in. Once he gets in, he realizes that he didn't really need to be there. It was just a quick question. So he's trying to get out of the hospital and go back home. But people keep pulling him aside to help out with stuff. And he just kept trying hopelessly to sneak out just so he could have his day off. And in terms of the uh, Wizard of Oz stuff, well, there are a lot of Wizard of Oz references. For example, like leaving the hospital and going home, you follow the yellow line or the yellow brick road, if you will. In the beginning of the episode, JD is listening to Toto on what is obviously supposed to be an iPod. Various characters in the show are trying to gain courage, trying to literally get a heart, and things like that. And there are blatantly obvious things like that, but there are also some very subtle things. Like, people have noticed that uh, JD's scrubs become much more colorful at some point. They go from kind of a drab brown to much more colorful, like blue and green or something like that. They're the exact same thing. Every doctor here knows that. Why would you page me? Because I told him to, and I know what you're thinking, Dorothy. And I think one of the best moments of the show is at the end of the show, the Worthless Peons, which is an acapella singing group that the hospital's lawyer is involved with. Uh, The Worthless Peons are played by a real acapella group called The Blanks. They did a really nice rendition of Over the Rainbow. It's done in the arrangement of uh, that Hawaiian... Oh, God, what's that Hawaiian guy who did the song? I I know that he died from all kinds of health problems, but they did a great rendition of it with multiple part harmony. Somewhere over the rainbow Way up high such a good show, such a well-written episode. I think most people consider the musical episode, I think it's called My Musical, to be the definitive Scrubs episode. No, to me, it's My Way Home. My next favorite episode of all time, well, I'm going to be honest, it's probably not really a fair episode to pick because really 
you kind of have to have at least a little bit of familiarity with the series and what has already happened up to this point. Now, I'm talking about the final episode of the second season of 30 Rock, which aired May 8th, 2008, and it's called Cooter. I understand that it's generally agreed upon that uh, Rosemary's Baby from earlier in the second season is the definitive episode. Um, Tina Fey herself believes so. And what's interesting is that Tina Fey wrote the Cooter episode, which won her an Emmy, but she did not write Rosemary's Baby, which did not win an Emmy. Yet she still says that Rosemary's Baby is a better episode. Don't get me wrong, though. Um, Rosemary's Baby is definitely a classic, but there's just a little bit more with Cooter. In this episode, Liz suspects that she's pregnant, and her suspicion is confirmed by positives on several home pregnancy tests. Ooh. However, she believes that the father was her ex-boyfriend, Dennis Duffy, whom she despises, but in a drunken stupor may have, well, let's just say performed with him. In the meantime, her former boss, NBC and General Electric executive Jack Donaghy, who was supposed to take over as CEO but is cheated out of that position by his rival Devin Banks, Jack is struggling over his new Bush administration job as Homeland Security Director for Crisis and Weather Management. He befriends a co-worker whom W nicknamed Cooter, and he is portrayed by Matthew Broderick. Also, NBC page Kenneth Parcell is trying to complete his application to work at the Summer Olympics in Beijing, while head page Donnie Lawson tries tirelessly to foil poor Kenneth's attempts to finish on time. So, with Liz, Jack, and Kenneth, you have a classic sitcom trope of three plots. Oh, oh but wait, there's more! Tracy Jordan is hard at work making his pornographic video game a reality. So there's a fourth plot. The working title is Gorgasm, colon, The Legend of Dong Slayer. Jack gets a message that his shot at GE CEO might soon become a reality again, so he attempts to resign his position in the Bush administration, but Cooter does not accept his resignation, saying that nobody is allowed to leave because so many in the administration have already jumped ship. The two plot to actually get fired by the administration by having legislation passed that was a guaranteed flop, a concept that was undoubtedly a nod to the producers whose Broadway version Matthew Broderick had recently starred in. Well, it turns out Liz isn't pregnant after all. The cheese curl snacks she had been obsessing over had evaporated bull semen as an ingredient. What can I say? Cooter is well-written and loaded with top-notch comedy from all characters. What are you in charge of exactly? Uh, we're sharing the load. It's a bit of homeland security, extreme weather preparedness, and the war on the poor. You mean the war on poverty? Yeah, okay, let's go with that. I know that message, and I know that tone. Every one of my sisters got that message junior year in high school. You're pregnant. What? No. Really? Prenatal vitamins. Yeah, I know what prenatal means. Pre, before, natal, ruined. Hey, we have a meeting with the Appropriations Committee, like now. Oh, no, I'm not prepared. I know I'm not drunk either, but we'll manage. I remember when the episode first aired. Lisa was taking classes at Second City at night, so she didn't get to see the episode as it aired, unlike I did, but I T-voted it for her, of course. After the show aired, I drove down to Second City to pick her up, and when she got in the car, she said, So, how was 30 Rock tonight? I said, mm, It was okay, I guess. Not bad. I didn't really say much more, but then after a few minutes, right before we were about to turn onto Lakeshore Drive, I said, Okay, I can't take it anymore. It was the most amazing episode ever. It has everything. Well, okay, it didn't have everything. 
It did not have an appearance by Jack's mother, Colleen, always brilliantly portrayed by the great Elaine Stritch. I tell him his mother's here and she loves him, but not in a queer way. But honestly, I don't really see how they could have squeezed her into the plot. But still, Rosemary's Baby with a wonderful performance by Carrie Fisher. Help me, Liz You're my only hope! Was a fantastic episode, surely, but Cooter is just a bit better. And what favorite episodes of all time list would be complete without a mention of The Simpsons? So I'm going to take you to Season 8, January 12th, 1997. Most Simpsons fans would probably say that the best episode was Cape Fear, which truly is a brilliant episode, and for my money, is easily the best of the Sideshow Bob episodes. But there's just so much with my favorite episode, The Springfield Files, to not declare it to be one of the best episodes, not only of The Simpsons, but also any TV show. In the Springfield Files, Homer is convinced that he sees a glowing alien from outer space while walking home from Moe's. Why was he walking home? Well, because he was too drunk to drive. Seeing that he was too drunk to drive, nobody believed that he actually saw the alien. But because he was so sure about everything, Bart joined him one night so that Homer would have a witness. Sure enough, the alien shows up, and Bart manages to capture the encounter on videotape. Agents Mulder and Scully, yep, the same characters from the X-Files, and also on The Simpsons were voiced by David Duchovny and Gillian Anderson. They're brought in to investigate. Well, the alien is actually revealed to be Mr. Burns, who, after weekly treatments to prolong his life, would wander around in a daze, with decades of exposure to radiation at the nuclear power plant causing him to glow at night. There's just so much in this episode to love. The Plan 9 from Outer Space-styled narrative segments hosted by Leonard Nimoy, the sly Mel Brooks reference with the orchestra passing by on a bus and playing the music from Psycho, and Mr. Burns and Leonard Nimoy leading the cast in a sing-along of Good Morning Starshine. Good morning, Starshine. The Earth says hello. You twinkle above us. We twinkle. How? How can you not love this episode? And we're going to jump back a few years to November 18th, 1992, season four of Seinfeld. The episode, The Contest. Really? No, 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 you heard me right. Yeah, I said earlier that I was never a fan of the Seinfeld TV show, but I cannot deny that The Contest is a brilliantly written episode for probably the very few, um, if any, of you who have never seen the episode. The titular contest was one in which Jerry, Kramer, Elaine, and George put up a total of $450, and that prize money would go to the one who went the longest without, um... Well, the brilliance of the episode is that the activity is never actually stated, you just have to use context clues to figure it out. Um, and to be fair, the context clues are pretty easy. It doesn't take a genius to quickly figure out exactly what they were talking about. My mother caught me. Caught you? Doing what? You know, I was alone. It's never really stated who won either, but during the course of the episode, we learn that Elaine and Kramer are the first to be eliminated from the contest, leaving Jerry and George. And by the end of the episode, it's not really explicitly stated who the final winner was. But in the series finale, George confessed that he cheated in the contest, leaving many to believe that it meant that Jerry won. The really crazy thing about the contest is um, 
It was based on a real-life experience that series creator Larry David had. So that's how you know I'm trying to be a little bit neutral here. Don't really care for the show, but dang it, I can't really not love the writing, the presentation of the contest. And yet another entry in the people probably disagree with me file. Uh, I really don't care because I'm right, okay? Let's go to the office, the U.S. version, of course. Season 3, April 5th, 2007. The first episode of The Office that I ever saw. I watched it as it aired, and that is The Negotiation. From the day that I saw that, I thought the episode was just nothing short of genius. Honestly, I only watched because I recently heard my brother just rave about what a great show The Office is. Uh, Usually, I ignore my brother's recommendations for no real reason other than that I'm the bratty little brother. But one night I decided to give it a try just to see what the big honkin' deal was. Well, looks like I picked the right night. I think most fans consider the season four episode Dinner Party to be the gold standard, but not this guy here, not this schnook. For one thing, season four to me is just kind of dark. I mean, I don't know how else to describe it. Also, there's just so much going on in the negotiation. For a first-time viewer... I quickly understood what was going on in the series itself. You have Michael Scott, the clueless boss, and he reminded me so much of someone I knew in the equivalent position uh, at a job that I had before. I guess I could say it's funny because it's true. I think it was an article in Entertainment Weekly that said that every office has a Michael Scott, and if you don't think there's a Michael Scott in your office, then you are the Michael Scott of your office. I could also tell that there was something going on between Jim and Pam, some kind of awkward friendship. I figured out quickly that Dwight was just generally a strange person. It was obvious that Michael hates Toby with a passion for some strange reason. And given that the show follows a very specific chronology, and that the writers were able to produce a third season episode that does such a great job presenting the basis of the entire show to newbies like me back then, you can't dispute that the negotiation is just a brilliant... I I use the word brilliant too much, but I'm going to say it again. A brilliantly written episode. What makes it brilliant? Well, for one thing, Michael learns some negotiation tactics. From Wikipedia... Number 14, declining to speak first. Makes them feel uncomfortable, puts you in control. When he mentioned that, I said, wait, did he just say Wikipedia... And then he had a talking head explaining that because anybody can edit a Wikipedia entry, there's no better source. Wikipedia is the best thing ever. Anyone in the world can write anything they want about any subject. So you know you are getting the best possible information. Wow. I actually said out loud to nobody. I was home alone. I said, is he that dumb? And Michael finds out that he inadvertently put on a woman's suit. And when his boss Jan sneaks him a little negotiation tip that completely goes over his head, oh my goodness, just... I can offer you a 12% raise, but you have got to ask for 15. I just need you to ask for it so I can record that you asked for it. Okay? Ah, so... All right, Levinson. I would like a 15% raise. No, but we can offer you 12. But you just said 15. Just perfect. Just beautiful. Oh, speaking of negotiation tactics, uh, those of you who are fans of The Office, I noticed that tactic number six, change the location of the meeting at the last minute, 
that tactic was used successfully in at least two other episodes, once by Michael in an earlier episode, and once against Michael in a later episode. In the second season episode, The Client, Michael changed the location of his meeting with Christian from Lackawanna County from the Radisson to the Chili's, and he did end up getting the county's business. And in the sixth season episode, Mafia, when Angelo Grotti arrived at the restaurant to go over the insurance options with Michael, Grotti immediately requested a new table, and <laughs> he was able to sell a policy to the reluctant Michael. As far as I'm concerned, no episode of The Office is just more genius, more memorable, more ideal than The Negotiation. Now, moving on, I seriously doubt anybody would disagree with me. We're going to go back to the 90s again, barely, specifically May 21st, 1990. I'm talking about The Last New Heart. That is the name of the episode and also what it actually was, the last episode of New Heart. One way you know that an episode of a TV show is great is if it makes you scream in amazement. I have to say, several episodes of Mad Men did that for me, but honestly, there isn't a single episode of that show that I would put on this list simply because the episodes of Mad Men are so scaffolded upon each other that you can't just single out one episode and say, this is the greatest episode of the series and one of the greatest episodes ever. There are too many to pick. However, with New Heart, you can. And if you saw The Last New Heart, there was one point where you probably were screaming in amazement, in joy, in comedy. But I'll get to that in a moment. In The Last New Heart, the unnamed town in which the show is set is taken over by a Japanese millionaire who turns the town into a massive resort with a golf course. Everybody in town ups and leaves, except for Dick Loudon, as portrayed by Bob Newhart, of course, and his wife Joanna. One of the things that make this episode so brilliant is that we actually get to hear Larry's brothers, both named Daryl, as many of you know, speak for the one and only time. I gotta wonder if this was a nod to Howdy Doody's final episode when Clarabelle spoke for his first and only time. Goodbye, kids. But of course, the big moment. Dick is knocked out by an errant golf ball. The next scene starts in total darkness. A light turns on, revealing a bedroom set. And it turns out that the person we see in bed is not Dick Loudon, but Bob Hartley, the character that Bob Newhart played in the Bob Newhart show back in the 70s. Turns out he dreamt that incident. So Bob wakes up his wife to tell her about this wild dream he just had. Now, the wife is not Joanna Loudon, of course, but Emily Hartley, as portrayed by Suzanne Plachette, just as she did on the Bob Newhart Show. Now, remember how the entire 1985 to 1986 season of Dallas was a dream? Well, what Newhart was saying was, screw you guys, our entire series was a dream. Yep, it was determined that all of Newhart was a dream that Bob Hartley had probably as a side effect of having Japanese food for dinner. Go to sleep, Emily. <laughs> you know, you, uh, you really should wear more sweaters. At the very end of the episode, instead of hearing the end of episode music from Newhart, we hear the end of episode music from the Bob Newhart show. Just fantastic. Genius. However, I do admit I have a problem with the episode. When the big reveal happens in the final scene, 
The bedroom is clearly the bedroom from the Hartley's Chicago apartment. But in the last episode of the Bob Newhart show, the Hartley's moved to Oregon. Could it theoretically be possible that the Oregon bedroom was arranged exactly as the Chicago bedroom? Well, I guess. I mean, after all, when Lisa and I moved to Chicago, I did attempt to lay out the living room in Chicago as it was in our last New Jersey apartment, but it still wouldn't have been totally identical. So chances that the Hartley's Oregon bedroom was a perfect match for the Chicago bedroom, slim to none. Might it be that the Hartleys changed their minds at the last minute and decided to stay in Chicago and put everything back 100% where it was? It's possible, but what are the chances they would have gotten it 100% perfect? But still, The Last New Heart is truly one of the greatest episodes of television ever. And who would ever disagree? Now, what I consider to be the number one most important, most brilliant ever episode of any TV show ever of all time, airing January 28th, 1978. And here's how important it is. It was a two-parter. It was a two-parter. The episode is called... Doobie or not Doobie. That's right, that episode of What's Happening where rerun bootlegs the Doobie Brothers. And by the way, there's a Facebook group with that title. (laughs) I mean, think about this plot. The Doobie Brothers are coming to town. Now, I don't know if it was ever explicitly stated in the show, but I think that What's Happening is supposed to take place in the Watts neighborhood of Los Angeles, which I believe is an all-black or mostly black neighborhood. The Doobie Brothers are coming to town, into Watts, to perform at the high school that Roger, Dwayne, and Rerun attend, because that's where they went to high school. And everybody is excited. They're thrilled to pieces. Suddenly, the Doobie Brothers are the most important thing in the world ever. Ever, ever, ever. Sounds plausible to me. I think it's just the whole bizarreness, the absurdity, that makes people always remember this episode, because who would ever believe that? Another thing that makes you want to say who would ever believe that is just the plot itself. When Roger lands an interview with the Doobie Brothers, and the Doobie Brothers are asked, like, what's the biggest problem that they have to deal with? And one of them says, well, it's got to be bootleggers, you know, people recording our concerts, distributing them, and they sound bad, and, you know, it doesn't do much for our music, it makes us look bad and all this. Um, One of the Doobie Brothers, when asked about that episode, he said, truth be told, that was the least of our worries, you know, and most performers, I believe most big performers will say the same thing. They'll say, yeah, it doesn't bother me if somebody records my concert. I don't care. Paul McCartney, for one, he's like, yeah, that doesn't bother me at all. In fact, the Grateful Dead and Fish encouraged it. But just that and just how the plot unravels. Another thing that I got a question about it is these people who made rerun bootleg the concert, they gave him a cassette tape recorder to hide under his trench coat, and that was it. I have never bootlegged a concert myself, but I know from other people who did that even back then they would bring some kind of equipment meant to enhance the sound as much as possible, like separate microphones that they would kind of camouflage. Or there were some times when they could even just set up a whole reel-to-reel tape recorder in the back and nobody would question them. But yeah, I find that a little bit implausible, but still something about this episode that you just cannot, cannot not love. 
And of course, you mention this episode to anybody who's seen it, they're always going to recite one line from the episode in particular. Hello there. <laughs> I be Roger Thomas, which doobie you be? Yeah, so doobie or not doobie, that is the greatest episode of any TV show ever done. Change my mind. Uh, but actually, uh, not right now, because I got to move on and talk about some music stuff. I'm sure there are some TV episodes that I might have forgotten to mention. I mean, hey, that's the way it is. If you care to share your favorites, hey, reach out to me at autobioutschnookpodcast.com or over the social media. In the meantime, though, I think we better hurry up and move over to a musical topic. Now, I invited my wife, Lisa, to join me for this next segment because we did something similar to this last year and we got some good responses. So, well, just... Have a listen. So, uh, you know, we did this last year and we got a pretty good response from it. So maybe we should do it again for 2020 for Music for Schnooks. So let's do a recap of the concerts that we went to. Um, We didn't go to any shows this year. We had tickets for some shows, but they ended up being canceled and other tours that we knew were going to be happening never even scheduled any dates. So no concerts for us in 2020. Hmm. Well, okay, again, I guess this is the shortest music for Schnooks segment ever. So there we have it. Wait, wait, wait a minute. Actually, you know what? You went through the trouble of sitting down here in the Schnook Nook to record with me. So... We should record something, so uh, what would you like to talk about? We should talk about our gateway drug. A gateway dr- what, what do you mean, gateway drug? I mean the gateway drug that got us into all that crazy music stuff we do. Let's talk about the monkeys. Ah, I gotcha. That's a good idea. Yeah, let's talk about the monkeys. But let's do this in the living room where it's nice and comfy. Well, okay, okay. the thing is, though, you know we live on a busy street, and uh, it's a nice day out. We have the windows open. I don't want to close the windows. And the thing is, we're going to pick up the sounds of cars, uh, street sounds and everything. Yeah, but sometimes the ambiance can be nice. Well, yeah, I I guess that's true. Uh, Well, uh, let's go talk about the monkeys. For me... The gateway starts in 1986. I almost want to say that maybe the absolute line of demarcation was when we moved from Bourbonnais to Joliet. The way my life had been going was I was listening to all the current top 40 music. I would listen to WLS AM 89, as they called it, which was basically top 40 and my records kind of reflected that. I was listening to Twisted Sister. I still have my copy of Stay Hungry. I still have my copy of After Eight by Taco. And I was all about Michael Jackson. I loved Michael Jackson. I had Off the Wall. I had Thriller. I had a cassette copy of the Jackson's Victory album. And I loved me some Michael Jackson. But something happened probably in 1986 when I realized that all this new music coming out was really sounding kind of stale. And it all sounded alike. It sounded sterile. And it was boring me to pieces. And the only radio I had in my personal possession was an AM radio. 
So it's not like I had FM to guide me. It's also that at that time, I mean, sterile is a good word for it, because at that time, I mean, we were at the height of the 80s. Everything used synthesizers. Synthesizers, keytars, elect- electric drums. Oh, God, I, the, hex- the hexagon I mean, things. I uh. mean, we had artists who probably were people who knew how to play instruments, who knew music, but everything they played, you know, if the power went out, they would have been dead because everything was electronic. What was going on with you at the time that kind of led you to deciding you needed this gateway drug that we're talking about? Well, yeah, and and yeah, the whole synth thing, synths, I just want to say that like we're talking, you were specifically talking about synthesizers, I believe. And I just want to say synthesizers are fine as a ingredient, but not the freaking base of the whole thing. Yeah. And it was just getting to be that like everything was all synthesizers, synthesizers, synthesizers. You didn't have just a guitar, a bass, and a set of drums, and maybe a keyboard. You had, like, 18 synths, sometimes taking the place of the bass, the guitar, the keyboard, and the drums. And it's like, ah, let's get something normal. Yeah. So, yeah, but what's this monkeys have so, to do with it, though? So, the monkeys came into my awareness in early 1986, because unlike you, I had MTV. Unlike me, you lived somewhere decent. Well, that is true. We also had a cable system where MTV was part of the standard package and didn't require an extra fee that your parents refused to pay. Yep. (laughs) You know, not realizing how much they were depriving their child because Mm -hmm. MTV was it. It was everything. It was the alpha and the omega. I remember on our cable system at the time, MTV was channel 27 out of 36 channels. Thank you very much, which really sounded astronomical compared to the five channels that we got before MTV. And that was only with the rooftop antenna. Channel 27, I would actually, before turning off the TV, I would actually tune the TV to 27 so that when I turned the TV on, if there was some kind of interesting video or something, I could hit record on my VCR right away and capture it (laughs) because we didn't have TiVo back then. And you also had a VCR back then, well, actually, we didn't. Actually, I didn't have a VCR until later in 1986, so we finally got one sometime in the fall. And my dad had one already at his house, but my mom didn't have one yet. She got one when they were having a big sale at Sears, and I think it was for the low, low price of like $399. Yeah, that was 1986 (laughs) money, too. And it was like a really good VCR. It was a four-head VCR at the time. And it also was a stereo VCR. Ooh. Yep, our first was a mono two-head. Except the fact that... Nobody had stereo televisions at the time. and Yeah, that was back when TV shows would say at the bottom of the screen at the beginning, in stereo, where available. By the way, I just want to say, I was not totally deprived of music videos because we, uh, there was a UHF channel that was nothing but music videos and they usually showed the unedited ones too. Hmm. So I got to see like Don't Answer Me by uh, Steve Miller Band over and over and over. I saw, that's well, that's how I knew about Twisted Sister. 
because of all the videos. Yeah, that, but that you didn't show. get. And we had HBO, which had a video jukebox before they showed the features. And you also had Friday night videos on NBC, which I didn't watch because you probably didn't know because your parents no, made you I, go to I, bed too early. No, I, I knew about it, but yeah, I, <laughs> yeah, because on I was, to, I was forced to go to bed too early to see. It. But if you didn't have them, you know, MTV gave you the personalities. You had the VJs. You had Martha Quinn and um, uh, Nina Blackwood and Adam Curry and Adam Curry, the inventor of the podcast, I believe. Oh, really? Yes. I did not know that. And was. Alan Hunter and JJ Jackson and oh, who I miss. I know I'm missing something, but they were the people like you would watch them. And there were the shows like Headbangers Ball and 120 Minutes and MTV just had it was everything. I mean, I remember my mom telling me how she would watch American Bandstand back in the 50, like late 50s when she was in high school, because not only would you have the music on the show, but you saw that's how you learned like the new dances and you saw what the kids were wearing. So it was like a whole little, like almost like a live teen magazine thing. And MTV was the same thing for, for us. So it was just the end all be all. And in February of 1986, they started showing the monkeys and they started with this big monkeys marathon over a weekend around that time was when my parents were getting divorced. So yeah, that was that was kind of rough. That was, you know, that was rough times from my mother and a lot of stress, a lot of tension. I was cool with everything, but it was still things weren't all that great around the house for a little while. And the monkeys came along at the perfect time because it gave me a wonderful distraction. I don't even know if I knew that this Monkeys Marathon was happening, but it was a weekend in February. I think I had a head cold or something. So I turned on the TV, which of course was already tuned to Channel 27, and there was this show. I already had an interest in the 60s. So of course, this you know was something right up my alley at the time. And I realized later on the episode was called uh, Monkeys Get Out More Dirt when the four of them fall in love with a girl who owns the local laundromat, this very tall, buxom woman played by Julie Newmar, who was also Catwoman. Yes. So kind of like this busty, sexy girl, and they all go crazy over her. And there's this big romp in the middle of the episode because they're all trying to impress her and they're riding around on motorcycles through the laundromat and it's just all this crazy stuff and i mean i fell hard in love with the show immediately now i wasn't a stranger to the monkeys because i had seen the show back in the early 70s when it was on i think it was run on saturday mornings yeah cbs yeah, I remembered seeing the show and I knew I had heard of the monkeys. The very least I knew the song I'm a believer. So it wasn't like something that was foreign to me, but I had never really paid attention to the show. From then on it was like monkeys, monkeys, monkeys all the time because <laughs> after that weekend MTV started showing the show once summertime came it was on like between cable and regular channels 
you could see it like six or seven times a day because it was on MTV. Yep. Nick at Night also showed it on Nickelodeon because uh, I think that was about the time Nick at Night started, actually. And also Channel 9 in New York showed it. Our cable got the New York and the Philadelphia channels. Half the UHF channels out here played it. So it was on Channel 29 in Philadelphia, maybe Channel 17 in Philadelphia. I mean, it was everywhere. I remember it was kind of funny watching the MTV or Nickelodeon broadcast versus the Channel 9, say, broadcast, because Nickelodeon and MTV showed the entire episode The other stations cut into it because they needed more time for commercials. (laughs) Wait, the thing is, I don't think MTV and Nickelodeon showed them uncut completely. Because there's some stuff, if you watch the original episodes as they aired, there's a lot of stuff in there that they didn't even show on Nickelodeon. Like, I never, ever saw them in front of, say, the NBC sign in Burbank. We're talking a couple seconds, maybe, as opposed to a difference of several minutes but, being cut out. But yeah, like the non-cable channels, yeah, they butchered the crap out of those. Yeah. But going to my side here, it wasn't until definitely after we moved to Joliet when we had a, a much better cable package. And it was the music for me. I mean, I yeah, everybody in the world was already familiar with Daydream Believer and I'm a Believer. And I believe those were probably the only two songs I could recognize as Monkey's songs. Actually, this is this is true. I was familiar with What Am I Doing Hanging Around, but I didn't know it was a Monkey's song. Because hmm. Jonathan Brandmeier played it a lot. My oh. brother used to listen to him a lot, Brandmeier all the time. But he never actually and said who... who what, what station what, was That was uh, The Loop. Oh, okay. It was uh, on his morning show, on his talk show. But... I did not know it was the Monkees. He never said what the song was or who the artist was. He just played it. But for me, here I was virtually musicless because I think a good part of it was that I was a big Michael Jackson fan. But around 1986, a kid my age, you could not admit to other kids your age that you liked Michael Jackson because you would get laughed at. (laughs) Not where I'm from. Because Michael Jackson wasn't cool anymore, especially when Bad came out. I know I mentioned it before in a previous episode, but it was just not credible for someone who talked like this to sing about how bad he was. And, you know, <laughs> like, he was laughed at mercilessly, so I couldn't tell kids that I liked Michael Jackson, and I stopped. I, I never owned a copy of Bad until the past year or two, I should say. And by the way, I don't really like it that much. Anyway, I was virtually musicless, and... Someone like me to be without music, that's hard to understand. But there was that one day I saw a commercial for this Monkees compilation on Silver Eagle Records. It had the exact same cover as uh, the, uh, then and now the best of the Monkees, but it was it pretty much had the same songs too, except it also had good, clean fun. Yeah, it was more of kind of a career-spanning sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, sort of. And the music clips that they played in the commercial, I was like, I like this. This is pretty cool. I liked the guitar intro on Last Train to Clarksville. And one of my classmates mentioned that he liked the guitar part in Last Train to Clarksville and all that. And he's a big guitar fan, so I figured, hmm, let me try these guys out. So what did I do? Well, I'll tell you this. I never, ever, ever watched the show before, ever. And I knew, I always knew about the Monkees because as long as I'd been alive... 
there was a there were monkeys reruns somewhere on a local station or UHF or something. So I always knew about that. I never watched the show for one reason. I did not like the theme song. <laughs> That's how I was. If I don't like, if I didn't like the theme song, I wasn't going to watch the show. Cause why would I put myself through listening to something I don't like, but I figured, well, I got to watch this show if I'm going to hear this music. So that's what I did. I would watch the show. I would actually audio record the shows over the air on a tape recorder so I could have the songs. That's what we did back then. Yep, yep. Because, hey, I was in seventh grade. I didn't have professional equipment or anything. I had whatever my parents could afford to get me for Christmas and birthdays and stuff. So I was limited to the TV show and... The second time I ever went to the Joliet Public Library, my second trip there ever, I looked through the records and I saw four Monkees albums. There was The Monkees, their first album, More of the Monkees, both on Cold Gems. Uh, More of the Monkees was in mono. I think the the other one was as well. Let's see, what else was Hit Factory, the two record, the really weird two records set on pair records, and... More Greatest Hits of the Monkees. And I brought those home, and I listened to it, and I really, really got into the stuff that I was hearing. I really, really liked it. That may or may not have been after I got Then and Now the Best of the Monkees on cassette as a Christmas present from my brother. In fact, yeah, that must have been the first actual official Monkees recording I ever heard, because before then I was just listening to the tapes that i made off the tv set so i could just have oh, them. that must have sounded fantastic oh I'll t- hey i'll <laughs> tell you what though that was the only way i could hear the 1966 version of valerie because missing links volume two hadn't come out yet Ooh, when we're talking about the monkeys as a gateway drug one of the things that it kind of opened the door for me on is is records because i mean i you know i had had records i listened to records but i mean this took me to a new level because not long after I started watching the monkeys on MTV and I don't remember the timeline of this I know I eventually got a cassette copy of the monkeys greatest hits which was the only monkeys product sold at record world which was the big record store in our local mall which was a very cool place black interior and everybody who worked there was like 20 years old and had that kind of early mid 80s young guy slightly feathered hairstyle but it was a really good store and they sold a lot of great stuff and had you know all kinds of things but at the time the only monkeys thing they had was the cassette tape of the monkeys greatest hits which had been put out by arista in 1976 So I I don't remember if I got that first or if I acquired these records first. There was one day after my mother and I went to mass, she said, oh, we're going to stop by her friend Joanne's house. Joanne was like probably at the perfect age when the monkey started. She was in probably eighth grade, Mm. maybe about the same age I was at that time. Uh, You know, she was like maybe eighth or ninth grade. The reason we were stopping at her house is she wanted to give me her two monkeys records, which I still have. Their debut album, that was a stereo copy on Cold Gems, and then More of the Monkeys was a mono copy. And in very good condition, that was probably the first time I ever really 
was exposed to the word mono hmm. in terms of a record as opposed to in, in terms of like an illness that makes you sleep for like a month. And we had a really good stereo uh, receiver for our stereo that actually had a stereo mono switch. So hey, my, I, my parents' Zenith console had a stereo mono. So I play, you know, I learned kind of learned to play around with that and, and mess with that. And also the volume control were basically two faders, separate ones for left and right. Mm. So that's how I kind of learned that if you messed with those faders for I'm going to buy me a dog, you're going to hear only Davy's part out of one channel and only Mickey's part out of the other. So you could like learn one part and turn down one side and basically recite like you could learn Davy's part and then recite it to Mickey's part. I just got back from Africa, you know, I was playing cards with the natives. No, I usually won. Uh, uh. <laughs> oh, Zulus. <laughs> and then my friend Susan found out her dad in his big trunk of records in their living room had a mono copy of the Monkees' debut album, and he also had a copy of Headquarters. Oh. Which was their third album. In the meantime, my friend Susan borrowed my More of the Monkeys record and she put on tape the first three albums. You know, she made a copy for herself and a copy for me. So I had that tape, which I played 80 bazillion times and eventually I think wore it out until it dissolved into a bunch of magnetic molecules and died. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's the thing for, you know, late 1986, we got a VCR, I got this double-decker cassette deck for Christmas, but I had those things, and that kind of tided me over until more product came out, because as 1986 went on, as we went towards the summer, with MTV playing Monkeys episodes in constant rotation, and with them gearing up to have a tour... They started pushing out records into the stores. My third trip to the Joliet Public <laughs> Library brought back the four Monkees albums that I checked out. And I went back to see if any more materialized. Instant replay. Oh, good Lord. On Rhino. And I, I mind you, I was in seventh grade. I was 12 years old. I did not know the concept behind reissues <laughs> and specialty labels and things. And the Rhino label had the exact same mm -hmm. design as the Cold Gems yep. label. So here I am thinking, okay, uh, wow, this instant replay. I don't see Peter Tork on this. So he, this must have been when they started to break up. I think I know what's going on. Cold Gems was the label when all four of them were together. <laughs> and when they weren't, it was Rhino. That must be what it was. <laughs> no, that wasn't it at all. I remember I got Monkey Business and Monkey Flips, which were essentially Monkey's Greatest Hits 3 and 4. But the monkey business was a picture disc, yep. which was a new thing, another new thing for me. Like, I, I was like, oh, this is a thing that can happen. <laughs> like, they can put pictures right on the record that you can watch as the record spins around and around oh, and around. Oh, I knew about that long before that, because I had a picture <laughs> disc of Walt Disney's The Fox and the Hound when of course I was five you did. years old. And then in the summer, I think all the monkeys records came out on Rhino. I don't remember exactly when I acquired the vinyl, except for Pisces, Aquarius, Capricorn, and Jones Limited, which that year, see, my birthday is in December. 
it had been really nasty and snowy on my birthday. So six months after my birthday in June, my dad, because my dad had planned to take me out to this really, really great sit down Chinese restaurant, very fancy Chinese restaurant. And in June, he said, hey, it's six months after your birthday. Why don't we make up for it and go to uh, Stately Gardens and go out to dinner? Because my dad loved Chinese food. So we went and had our fancy Chinese dinner. And then we went over to the mall afterwards, which because it was right by there. And I had found a $10 bill the previous summer floating in the ocean. I was with my cousins and my cousin John had ridden in a wave, body surfed in a wave, and I didn't. And I look and there's this $10 bill floating on the water. And John was so mad that he's like, if I hadn't taken that wave, I would have gotten that $10 bill. <laughs> but I saved it because I was like, you know, this has to be for a special purchase. And I spent that $10 on Pisces, Aquarius, Capricorn, and Jones, which is arguably the best monkeys record. And I still have all my monkeys records. I haven't gotten rid of a thing. That was special. I have a story like, well, not, okay. it's not quite that monumental. Well, actually, yes, it was because it involves the first time I ever went to Crow's Nest, dun, dun, dun. the greatest record store that ever existed. My brother was going to Crow's Nest one day during the summer in 1987. Now, mind you, you know, I, I was in between seventh and eighth grades, so I didn't have a job. The only money I had is whatever money I scraped together from, say, birthday cards or something. And I had enough to get this Monkeys album I had heard about that was reportedly really, really good, called Headquarters. Mm. So when my brother was going, and mind you, my brother's 10 years older than me. He was going out to Crow's Nest. I said, let me come with you. He's like, okay. I always bought tapes rather than records back then because I did not have a good sounding way to listen to records at the time. So I went to Crow's Nest and I saw Headquarters and I grabbed it and I realized I have enough money to get one more tape. And there was another song by the Monkees that I didn't think was on Headquarters that I remember hearing on a couple of TV show episodes and I managed to get it on tape when I was holding the recorder up to the TV set. And I didn't know the name of it, but it, it was full synthesizers and stuff. And I thought it had something to do with day and night or something. And I saw this cassette copy of Pisces, Aquarius, Capricorn, and Jones Limited. And I looked through the track listing, and it looked promising because I recognized a few of the songs. And I saw Daily, Nightly, and I thought, wait, is this the song? Well, I'll take a chance on that. So I bought those two, and I remember it was hot. It was such a hot freaking day, too. And yeah, I brought those two tapes home, and that was it. That was absolutely it. Just those two tapes, especially what got me was Pisces, Aquarius, Capricorn, and Jones Limited. And something that I discovered accidentally is that those two albums, Headquarters and Pisces, Aquarius, Capricorn, and Jones Limited, both sound really, really amazing when you have the hum of a central air conditioner. <laughs> to me, that was summer, staying inside and listening to this exciting music. So yeah, you had Star Collector and Daily Nightly, and man, that, was, that made for some excellent listening. 
And yeah, for pretty much the entire year between, say, fall 1986 and the summer of 1987, my listening was exclusively monkeys because that was all I really had. I wasn't going to go back and listen to Michael Jackson. I wasn't going to fire up my crappy turntable and listen to Taco or the Beat Street soundtrack. So that was it. And it was driving my brother crazy. I didn't mean to, really, but he said, for God's sakes, you don't have to listen to just the monkeys. And and I thought about it, I was like, you know, as much of a dope as my brother is, I'm the little brother. That's how I That's how I thought of my, my big brother, you know. I think he's right this time. And I'm thinking, maybe I should expand my okay, horizons well, a little. Let's get to that shortly. Another gateway drug was concerts. Because... Now, this was the date, the date of dates. June 6th, 1986 was my first time going to see the Monkees. And my first, the first concert I went to that was a concert for me, as opposed to going along with my parents. I hadn't been to too many concerts, but this Monkees thing was like, yes. They were playing at Six Flags Great Adventure in Jackson, New Jersey at the Great Arena. It was almost like kind of like a small stadium with bleachers and an open floor outdoors with a stage at one end. The concert was $3 over the price of park admission. (laughs) So you had to pay to get into the park and then an extra three bucks to see the monkeys. So for somebody going into ninth grade, yeah, I could do that. Especially since back then, I think park admission was only like $15 or something. It wasn't, it was definitely much more affordable than today. My mom took me and my friend Susan, other kids from school were going too. Like we knew a lot of people who were going. My friend Rachel, we thought this was the coolest thing ever. Her father was a shop teacher at Westfield High School, like north of us in New Jersey. One of the things that he was responsible for was the print shop and they had a silk screen. So he made monkeys t-shirts for us in our school colors because our school colors were red and black. So he took red t-shirts and he made a silk screen of the monkeys logo in black and he made shirts for us that we wore all wore to this concert. The way the concert began, one of the backup band members, they would bring out this big mock Victrola record player. And one of the guys in the band would hold up a record, which we all knew was a, like it had the Cold Gems label on it. So everybody went berserk. And they put the record on the Victrola and it would start playing the monkey's theme. And Peter, Mickey, and Davey would walk out lip-syncing to the record. And then the record would start to skip. And they would look at each other in mock horror. And they'd grab, like, a big orange cartoony-looking plunger. And they'd attach the wires to the record player. And they'd push down the plunger. And there would be this big puff of colored smoke and this kaboom. In the meantime, like Mickey would run behind the drums and Peter would put on the guitar and they would go right into Last Train to Clarksville. And I remember here they were walking out on stage, probably no more than 
maybe 50 feet away from us where we were. And it was like, yeah! <laughs> I mean, you know, just that fangirly scream that you didn't know you had in you until you see the guys you've been thinking about and watching on TV and listening to, and you have the poster on the wall and the pictures from Tiger Beat all over the place. I mean, that's why I love talking to my students about One Direction or Justin Bieber or Orlando Bloom or BTS, like all these different people who've come and go and bands who've come and gone. I love talking to girls about it because even though it's completely different music and different times and different things, that fangirliness never, ever, ever changes. And it's just so good to know that that will never change. Hey, that- I got to see some of your fangirliness once. Was it 2014? Mm-hmm. When Mickey Dolans was doing a solo show. He And uh, it was Doubleheader, Mickey Dolans, and the Cow Sills, what's left of them. <laughs> I heard the opening notes of That Was Then, then This, this is, is Now, and you screamed like a little girl. I, I, was, <laughs> I'd never seen you do that before. And I think I fell to my knees. <laughs> no, you didn't fall to your well, knees. Well, I felt like it, but... Well, that song, to this day, I indelibly associated with 1986 in my head. That is what 1986 sounds like, that song. Well, you were there for the for the taping of the video. Yep. We went to that concert on June 6th, and then went back on July 25th for another show that they did that was announced like the day before. And I mean, in the video, I swear to God, you can see this little red dot way on the other side of the arena. I swear that that's got to be me in my red monkey shirt, but I don't know. (laughs) It could be. And that's another, that's an advantage you had over me. You (laughs) had that kind of thing to do. I didn't. I mean, yeah, the monkeys came out and did shows in the Chicago area. Like I think Poplar Creek and Hoffman Estates and all Mm -hmm. that. But how would I get there? My parents weren't going to go see the monkeys with me and I didn't know anybody. I was alone in my monkeys fanness. Well, but you lived in what somebody on the Facebook page for the Zilch podcast said was basically monkeys fan headquarters. Well, yeah, because because the... everything happened in Jersey. The video happened there. Mm-hmm. The first monkeys convention happened well, in the, New Jersey. No, it was in Philadelphia. Oh, really? It was in yeah, that was in Philadelphia. But the thing is, one of the main people who coordinated that convention was a woman named Maggie McManus. She lived in New Jersey. I forget where, but it was someplace not terribly far from me, maybe somewhere like Middlesex County. Mm. She was the editor and publisher of the Monkey Business Fanzine. Uh-huh. Knowing what we have now with social media and the internet where news and information can get updated immediately. It's kind of awesome that this woman did this all on her own from her apartment. And I mean, it was pretty cool. Like she had articles, like interviews with all different people. And there were one ads ads in the back of the issues where people would sell memorabilia, they would sell handmade items, all kinds of cool stuff. But I mean, the thing that made the fanzine worth every penny that oh, I paid, I I this is going. when they had this convention in late 86, Peter, Mickey and Davey did attend in one of the Q&A sessions or whatever. Somebody asked Mickey, 
what's the fourth verse of going down? Because nobody could figure it out. So Mickey had to sit there and page through the song in his head, basically recite it to himself. And then he went through the verse slowly and Maggie McManus wrote everything down and put it in monkey business fancy. Like (laughs) now, you know, it's like the Rosetta stone. (laughs) There's a lot of great joy of going to see your favorite artist and screaming your head off for them. (laughs) As I think you understood for the first time when we went to see Paul McCartney in 2002. In the silhouette of the bass. Just seeing Just that. that. Like, it wasn't even Paul yet, but you understood. I didn't see a monkey show until 2012, and Davey was already gone for a year at the time. And, and when I think about it, I'm almost glad that I didn't see them before. Because at least the way that I see it, like when I'm looking at old set lists and things, it almost looks like... Monkey's concerts that didn't have Mike Nesmith in them were basically there for Davy Jones fans. Well, yeah, the concerts definitely had a different tone. And also the electronic music would have thrown me off. Like, And listening to the album that David Fishoff put out from that tour, first of all, it's, it's like Shades of Grey. They're doing it like eight times as fast as they should have been. It's like... Why are you rocking this out so much? Why are you rushing through it? That would have thrown me off. I would have well, been like, yeah, I'm done. Well, to be thing. fair, you know that in a lot of venues, they do have time limits. They do have to get the show over by a certain time. Don't speed up the songs, just cut them out. But also, that record, it's a two-record set. That's still not all the songs that they did. Uh-huh. A monkey's concert, like you can look up what their set lists were back then, especially in 1987. Oh my God. They did things from like instant replay. They did Ugh. all kinds of. I, I never liked instant replay. I'm surprised at all the people coming out saying, oh, I love instant replay. It's my favorite okay, album. Okay. Like, but I don't want to make it sound like I'm putting down Davy Jones, but Davy Jones. I think always was much more of a performer than a musician. Yes. Even though, for what it's worth, he was a better drummer than Mickey ever could hope to be. Oh, yeah. And I think he originally wanted to be the drummer on the show, but they wanted him out front to make all the girls scream and pass out and everything. So it's like when Davey was in the shows, they would have to have a sizable number of Davy led songs, which, sorry Davy fans, but the songs that he sang lead on, a lot of them are just bleh, like here. Let's let's drop in a little uh, montage just to demonstrate. Oh God, so why would you want to do that? I never thought it peculiar that you never gave me a smile. Seasons may change. We stay the same. The circus is coming to town. It said on the
You look so young and fair On the day we fall in love You and me I mean, a few of them are good. Like, back in 86, I screamed along with everybody else when he sang I Want to Be Free, because that's a song where a guy is just talking about wanting to be your friend. (laughs) And I mean, he's a hell of a performer and a great singer, but just his material is, it's like cotton candy. Whereas when you have Mike Nesmith in the mix... Mike Nesmith was a much more established musician even before the show. He had sold songs and played guitar and... Even went on a little concert tour. That failed miserably. Well, it's not that it failed. It's more like his manager failed to give him any checks from it. Well, yeah, he had no money. And split town. But, I mean, Mike definitely had much more musicianship. I think... Especially where Mickey is concerned, that kind of ups. Like if Mickey is perform, Mickey Mickey's a chameleon. If he's performing a concert with Davy, he's going to lean more to the Davy level pop. Where if Mickey is performing with Mike, he's going to feel much more licensed to be more of a musician, which is why in a Mike and Mickey show, you never see drumsticks in Mickey's hand. Mickey has well admitted that he only did drums for the TV show. He never liked playing drums. He never felt comfortable playing drums. He's not very good at it. So why don't we get back to the topic? Something about our collective music collections in this apartment. Most of the stuff is retro. And even that stuff that we have that is from the last couple of decades, it's still kind of retro. Like Wonderments, newish <laughs> band, but retro sound. Like I keep saying, oh yeah, we have a we have an album that just came out last year. Yeah, but it might have been put out by someone who's been in the business for 60 years. Or kind <laughs> of like, or like, what's my pretty much favorite or one of my favorite 80 songs is Sowing the Seeds of Love by Tears for Fears, which is basically a great big Beatles, I am the walrus, Penny Lane tribute. <laughs> and Eternal Flame is very beatle Yes, yes, yes it is. Yeah, and yes it is is also a Beatles song, <laughs> by the way. And, and the thing is, even in the 90s, like when you had all this new music out that I heard because, you know, I was doing radio pretty penny by stone temple pilots i loved that song and a lot of stuff by alanis morissette and cheryl crow and i realized all this stuff that i was really loving it sounds like they were trying to do rubber soul and the thing is this is bringing me back to like why why are we calling the monkeys the gateway drug because the monkeys basically got us into other things like when I realized when my brother said, you got to listen to something else than just the monkeys. I was in agreement because I heard pretty much everything that either I could hear or I wanted to hear. I wasn't in a rush to buy changes. Yeah. For example, I was curious about the monkeys present the second album they did after Peter Tork left, but I never really got around to getting it back in the 80s. What did I think? I'm thinking, well, the monkeys wouldn't have existed had it not been for the Beatles. So maybe I should give them a try. And there were two things that happened in the summer of 1987 that kind of pushed me into trying out the Beatles. Number one, somebody had taken the Beatles' Saturday morning TV cartoons 
and made a twist and shout video from those cartoons. And MTV was showing them all the time. Mm -hmm. And my brother was getting ready to defenestrate the TV because he was so sick of seeing it. I'm thinking, okay, well, one advantage to giving the Beatles a try is if I play twist and shout, I can like make my brother like completely <laughs> blow his top. And my brother, who is not a Beatles fan, made it known that he was going out to buy Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band on CD. Because that was a huge deal. That was deal. a huge honking when deal. The beat, when they put Sgt. Because... That was, the, that was how I learned about that album. They hyped the hell out of well, yeah, be, Well, Sergeant yeah, because Pepper. it was the 20th anniversary of a mm -hmm. landmark album in which the first lyrics were, it, it was, was 20, 20 years yeah. ago today. And my brother actually got it. He said that he figured he should have that because of its history. Yeah. I mean, he's not a Beatles fan. He is not. That is the only Beatles thing that was ever in mm -hmm. his possession. And typical of my brother, this is what he would do. He would buy new music and he would play the hell out of it to the point where I was ready to just throw myself off the roof. <laughs> but... After he kind of got over that and started dying down, like, I went to the library and figured, okay, I better start listening to the Beatles now. So, just like with the Monkees, I got four Beatles albums. I got Introducing the Beatles and the early Beatles, which I didn't realize at the time were the same album, really, just slightly different lineup. Rock and Roll Music Volume 2 and um, Real Music, which was oh, a compilation of... Uh, movie songs and i'll tell you what real music was great because it had a really good selection of tunes on it that if you're a new if you're just starting to listen to the beatles you get a pretty wide variety on there that's how i first heard i am the walrus the reason that i got introducing the beatles and the early beatles the reason why i targeted those was because they had twist and shout and i wanted to like drive my brother to the brink of mental insanity so I'm listening to Introducing the Beatles. I started to listen to the early Beatles, but that was in stereo, and I was, that was the moment that I learned that there was stereo and mono and why the word stereo exists. Because my turntable was so not a good one, and it had separate volume controls for the left and the right, just like the one you were talking about. But the right volume control was totally blown. So there was no sound coming out of the right. And I put on the early Beatles, and I would only hear the backing track. The counterfeit copy of Introducing the Beatles that I got from the library, though, that was in mono, so I could hear everything. So I'm listening to that, and I play Twist and Shout, and, and I was like, hey, hey, I'm going to make my brother really pissed off about that. Oh, much to my dismay, though, it didn't bother him because it was the video that drove him nuts, not the song. Ah. So I figured, eh. But I'm listening to the rest of the album, and I'm really getting into some of this stuff. I remember Anna, for some reason, struck a chord with me. Like, it just hit the right vibe for me. And boys, like, how the backing vocals, bop, shoo, wop, bop, bop, shoo, wop. And it's like, ooh, that's catchy. But, yeah, and I was getting hooked on the Beatles. And when my brother was gone... I would dig out his Sgt. Pepper CD and pop it in his CD player and give that a listen to. He had an Atari 65XE computer, and when he wasn't around, when he wasn't using it, I would use the thing and maybe play Dig Dug on it or, like, do some experimental basic programming, and I'd put on the Sgt. Pepper CD in the background. And I was especially digging Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. I, just the lyrics, mm -hmm. the sounds and everything. So at that point, listening to those four <clears throat> Beatles albums, I just got hooked on the Beatles. So for about 
another year or two. I was listening to just the monkeys, just the Beatles. So what were you about to say about your Beatlesness? Well, well, yeah, I already had some Beatle knowledge before the monkeys. Like for my birthday in maybe 1984, I got the Beatles 20 greatest hits record. So I had that and I actually had a copy of the Beatles second album that my mother had bought way back in the day. So I did have a couple things. And I think I had also gotten um, the Hard Day's Night U.S. soundtrack. Really? I mean, I had that record. I just don't remember exactly when I got it. And I had also seen A Hard Day's Night and Help because mm. our PBS station would show those during their begathons. Yeah. <laughs> What really the monkeys were the gateway drug for wasn't so much the Beatles music, but more reading about the Beatles and learning more about their history. Because around that time, I know I got a book that came out around 1986, 1987 called It Was 20 Years Ago Today, Uh, written by, do you know who wrote it? Sir George Martin. No. Derek Taylor. Derek Taylor, that's right. Derek Taylor, who had been, God rest his soul, but maybe what sent him to an early grave is that he worked for both the Beatles and the Beach Boys. (laughs) You can't live a long life after doing that to yourself. (laughs) So he wanted a change and he left to work for the Beach Boys. The Beach Boys made him run screaming back to the Beatles. Yep. But he wrote that book, and there were a couple other books at my local library about the Beatles. So I got interested in reading about Beatles history. And again, it's not like I, you know, my town library was dinky. So it's not like I could get a lot from there, but it was a start. There were other things that were around at the time. I think there were some documentaries and stuff about Woodstock that... You know, and a lot of the stuff back then, I think, because I, I remember there was something I was watching and my, I mean, I think it was a little too sunny, day glow, daisy decal, like, yay, hippies love peace kind of thing, where it's like, yeah, there was a lot more to the 60s. Yeah, we're not going to tell you that. what happened in 1968. I remember watching something and I, I know my mother kind of commented like, Pretty much to that effect, like that there were a lot of things that were pretty dark. Yeah. And one of the things I love dearly about Mad Men is I think they did a really good job of portraying that, especially during the seasons around 1967, 68, 69, that there were some pretty ugly things. And it wasn't all peace and love and happiness and everybody, you know, singing Kumbaya in a commune. But I needed to learn that and I needed to learn through that process. And that's something I have really learned and come to appreciate over the last 30 plus years. But getting back to like why we're saying gateway drug is, you know, again, the Beatles and 
I'm trying to think, like, all the stuff that I... Dis- I mean, it's obvious why I got into the Beach Boys, quite simply because I got tired of listening to the Beatles after a couple of years. Oh, and I needed Lord. to go to the next thing because I had heard it pretty much everything. I, I think there are people in this world who should not I was a te- I was a teenager. Okay. And I was like, okay, I need some other stuff. And I hadn't yet <laughs> discovered the imports section at Crow's Nest. So I got into the Beach Boys. And the thing is, like, I'm trying to think, like... How was it that I also got into the Doors? I'm still a big Doors fan. I got all, what was the thing I was all excited about getting just two weeks ago? That 50th anniversary of the Soft Parade that I'm pointing to right now. But the things I'm into, like the Doors, the Birds, uh, Bird. some Eric Burden. Oh, what else, what else do I go crazy for? Uh, love. Some, well, some some of love, like. I can't listen to anything past Forever Changes, and even I—I I didn't even really appreciate Forever Changes until the past year. And like old Pink Floyd, Sid Barrett, Pink yeah. Floyd. Yeah. Well, my friend Andrew turned me on to that, although he'll probably deny it now. <laughs> yeah, he. Yeah, the same guy who just a couple of weeks ago denied that he turned me on to Hawaiian style pizza, but he definitely did. Um, so he's to blame, huh? And all this stuff that I'm listening to, like in and how. Only in recent years have I really been digging Chicago, like their their 60s and 70s stuff. But the person who listens to my podcast, actually I think I, I've, I've had, I have more than one listener now, but the people who listen to my podcast, when they hear me talk about music every time, it's always pretty much from the same era. And the whole reason that, that it was, I mean, I guess I'm just now realizing it's probably because of classic rock radio. Because I knew that... Any Beatles song that I did not yet have copied onto my tapes from what I borrowed at the library, because I didn't yet buy everything at the time, I could hear the missing pieces on a classic rock station. And when I would listen to classic rock stations, I would be exposed to the other stuff, like The Doors and Zeppelin. I I mean, I, I don't know if I've ever said this on this podcast, but I like Led Zeppelin before their third album starting with their third album i just cannot tolerate them especially their fourth album i just want to say that right now but oh boy yeah yeah i just lost half my listeners so sorry you two but that's not i mean that it's funny because that's not my experience at all because the only radio i really listened to in the 80s was z100 top 40 Mm -hmm radio and i mean there were there were a lot of stuff that i liked at that time like george michael madonna and also i've always been much more in general much more of a song person than a band Hmm. person like people on facebook are all doing these you know 10 albums that were influential i've tried to jot down like what would i do for that it's hard for me to even come up with 10 albums Hmm. that are important like album meaning a record or a cd that i will listen to all or maybe skip one song like where the whole album is really important to me there aren't many i like songs i mean i will that's why the way things are now are just it's just perfect for me because i can hear a song and hit Soundhound and find out who that is and then go on iTunes and buy it. I mean, my iTunes is a patchwork of all different songs, all different artists, all different things. I just like 
when I hear something, and very rarely if I hear a song will I say, oh, let me check out more by that artist. I almost never do that wow. because that song itself is its own experience. Maybe I might like other stuff, but I just don't really bother doing that. Hmm. I don't know why. But uh, yeah, I mean, there were plenty of things that I liked that were current in the 80s. And I listened to Z100 every morning, getting ready for school. And my mom always had Z100 on in the car because she liked it. But I just listened occasionally to the oldie station, CBS 101. But I mean, like the classic rock stations, I don't even know if there was like 104.3 in New York. I don't even know if that was a classic rock station back then. Like, I never listened to WNEW like a lot of other people Hmm. did, or WHTG, which was like the alternative station when that became a thing. So, probably I found out about other 60s artists and songs, probably from MTV and VH1. Like, when they would have My Generation and they would show videos, like beat club performances from the 60s or or that... uh, uh, what was that song by Traffic? Oh, God, I don't know. You know what I mean. No, but I they... don't. I cannot oh, identify okay. Traffic. But they would show... I know it's blasphemy. But... Or they would show, like, Spill the Wine. Oh, yeah. You know, where they would have, like, the performance where they all have long hair and they're wearing, like, brown sweaters or where something. They... And they have, like, where the... the they they'll, have, they'll like... Shine the, they'll, sh- they'll sh- aim the camera directly at a bright light and it'll, and it'll like, black out. Yep. You know, <laughs> or they have... Um, chroma key that doesn't quite work because they didn't know how to deal with it yet yeah a lot of my 60s musical education didn't come so much from the radio as from mtv and vh1 Hmm. so well i mean also i can i can blame my obsessiveness and that if i hear something i like from an artist i want to hear more from that artist hearing like the doors there was this two cd set that everybody had back in the early 90s the best of the doors, I think. Oh, with the picture of him like this. All the compilations have a picture of him like this. <laughs> and it, yeah, that's. No, that I was, think I have that. Yeah, that was that was an observation I made that pretty much all the compilations up up till a certain year, they just had Jim Morrison on the cover, but the actual albums had all four of the doors. Yeah. But I was like, man, I need to hear more stuff like this. I'm I'm sick of hearing the same things over. So I, I listened to their first album. I was like, holy cow, this is amazing. Every Almost every single song on here is perfect. Then I had to listen to Strange Days. And on WCKG, it was Joe Thomas and The Seventh Day. Every Sunday night, he would play like five or six hours worth of music. Uh, not music, but albums from start to finish. And... He wouldn't talk over anything. He'd just play them. And so that way you could put a tape in the tape deck and you'd have a copy of that album right from the radio. You know, that's how I first heard a lot of Doors stuff. Spirit of America was actually featured on July 4th one year. Wow. He played the entire Led Zeppelin box set one night. That's how I kind of like got exposed to a lot of this stuff. Just, I guess because I was a radio fan, really, which is why I chose a career in radio that lasted a whole two years but kind of also with the monkeys being a gateway to record collecting oh yeah you know just like the 80s version of itunes was you would hear a song or you'd see something on mtv or vh1 and you'd go to your local sam goody or record world and 
you know, you'd look to see if they had the 45 because singles were, they were like 99 cents, a dollar 29. Yep. Pretty much what something it costs to buy a song off iTunes. Except you got two songs back then. Yeah, but <laughs> sometimes you didn't care about the B side. Oh. But. And that was another thing. That's another thing. It was like, because I'm thinking, okay, one reason I was really, I would listen to like as much from an artist as I could if I really liked a song. It's like, God, what else are they doing that might be this good? But, you know, well, and, but and also, that includes listening to the B-sides. But also, if you're buying something that's an old song, back then, a lot of times, the 45 that you would buy from Sam Goody in 1986 wasn't necessarily the same A and B side that had been put out yeah. in the 60s. So, like, say, for instance, you saw something like, Smokey Robinson, Tears of a Clown. Mm -hmm. You go to the store and it wouldn't necessarily be Tears of a Clown on the Tamla label or whatever, yep, whichever I, Motown mm -hmm. label it was put out on with whatever B-side it was. It would be on this Motown flashback, yep. like mm -hmm. really ugly orange yep. and white label. I, I was about to and go there. And it might have, on the B-side, it might be like, ooh, baby, baby, or yeah. like another Smokey Robinson song. I Want You Back so, and ABC were on the yeah. same record on the so, Jackson 5 on that flashback label. So, yeah, you were getting, t you know, in that case, you were getting yeah, two that, songs yeah. for your 99 cents. But there were also times when I started looking in like used record stores or Collingswood yep. Auction, Flea Market or something like that, you know, where you had people who were selling the 60s records, you could get an actual Tears of a Clown backed with whatever for 25 cents, 50 cents, yeah. whatever they were selling it for. You know, it might be scratched or it might have somebody's name written on the label, but hey, <laughs> yep. it was the 80s. You had to put up with scratches and pops and things like that back then. And the thing is, like, you're, you're kind of, like, talking about how the Monkees was kind of a gateway drug for record collecting for you. And I was into record collecting big time. I've, over the years, kind of calmed down about it. And I, I'm only we looking for very specific things. Have, yeah. yeah, it's like I don't need, like, every single pressing of Beatles 6 or something. <laughs> but interestingly, of all that time, I was obsessively collecting records I never bought a Monkees album until 1997. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, well, you bought the, the tapes. Yeah, I only bought the tapes, and yeah, which were also on Rhino. So my first thought was, oh, okay, so the post-Peter Tork vinyl and all the cassettes are on Rhino, but all the albums with four oh, of them on it are on Cold Gems. Wait, I gotta tell about this. So I had said earlier that I got Monkees Greatest Hits on cassette tape, because that's all Record World had. Yeah. And then I got... Then and now, the best of the monkeys on cassette, mainly because at the time I was staying at my grandmother's house and we had gone to Sears because she needed like an oil change or something. And we were walking around the store because she also wanted to buy a new TV. So I bought that tape from the music department, mainly because I was staying at her house. She didn't have a record player, but I had my Walkman with me. Yeah. And I didn't want to buy a record that I was going to have to wait until I went back home to listen to. So. Those are the only monkeys cassettes I ever got. Everything else had to be on vinyl. Because the thing about with the vinyl is, especially once I got my stereo component cassette deck, I like being able to, instead of buying a factory cassette where if the tape breaks or gets <laughs> effed up in the 
in the your Walkman, as we know, with the ballpoint pen, yep. you gotta wind it back in. If the factory cassette breaks, you're SOL. But if you get the records and you put them on tapes, first of all, you can often fit several albums on one tape. Yeah. So if you're traveling, that's less fewer tapes you have to carry around with you. And also, if your little Sony cassette tape breaks, big deal. You pull out another blank tape, make another. Yeah. You, know, you, you still have the source material yeah. intact. So I was big time on the records. Yeah. And, and I, I got a little story about wait, that. But. So this one boy who is kind of, who was following me around for a couple years until I finally, actually one of my friends like screamed in his face and said, get away from her and <laughs> stay away from her forever. But he tried to curry favor with me by giving me a cassette copy of Headquarters. First of all, I already had the vinyl. And second of all, you do not find your way to my heart by giving me a cassette tape. My Headquarters cassette story is it got mangled up in the tape deck once. And I was able to fix it, sort of. But the thing is, the tape had stretched a little bit. (laughs) And to this day... When I hear you just may be the one, it doesn't sound right to me because I'm so used to hearing. (laughs) And I can't, it doesn't sound right without that anymore. Yeah, yeah. Man, good times, good times. But yeah, I never owned a piece of Monkey's Vine, except for the copy of The Birds, the Bees, and the Monkeys on Rhino that I got for my birthday in 1989. Other than that, I did not own a Monkey's Vinyl until 1997. I probably bought, I think I bought Headquarters or something from, I think, either one of those clusters of record stores that was on Clark Street and uh, Lincoln Park in Chicago, or maybe Sound, or, no, not Sound Investment, uh, Record Swap in Homewood. Wow. And in fact, that even reminds me of a time, I think it was in 1998, when uh, my friend Andrew had an apartment just a couple of blocks away from me, actually. He moved moved out of his parents' house. And he called me up and he said, hey, come on over for a while. Bring some Monkees records. I was like, wait, are you, who's this again? <laughs> because his favorite band was Skinny Puppy. Probably still is, actually. And he listened to things like Psychic TV, and uh, he was all into Genesis P. Orridge, and... Uh, oh, negative he, land. And he was the one who, didn't he go to a Sonic Youth concert with like one of with the With brother brothers? Tom. Yeah. Yeah. With a who Franciscan I bo- brother. <laughs> no, no, Carmelite. Oh, Carmelite. And I think brother. he listens to this podcast, by the way. Hi, brother oh, Tom. Hi, brother Tom. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, he calls me up. He said, hey, come on over to my place you know, for, you know, and hang out for a little while. Bring some Monkees records. I was like, what? Uh, okay. So I'm thinking, okay, I know that he has weird musical tastes. He got me into Sid Barrett. So I better choose this wisely. So I, I grabbed uh, Headquarters, stuff that would be credible. Yeah. Uh, uh, Pisces, Aquarius, Capricorn, and Jones Limited, and Head. And I walked over to his apartment. And so he's flipping through the records. He said, where's the last train to Clarksville? Where's <laughs> I'm a Believer? Well, it's, I mean, it's funny that you say this because going back to 1986, when the monkeys were all over MTV and they were the talk of the town everywhere you went. You know, like I said, they were playing at Six Flags Great Adventure. So if you had a season pass to Great Adventure, you only had to pay three bucks to go see the monkeys. So, I mean, that's a pretty sweet that's, deal. That's a pretty sweet but, deal. Yeah, so, so wait, wait, wait. So you have everybody was into the monkeys for at least a certain period of time. And I remember shortly after that 
June 6, 1986 concert. We only had a few days left of school. And there was this kid, Terry, who was a total skate punk. And he had on his backpack, he had all kinds of buttons from all kinds of alternative music that he listened to. And we were in school and I noticed on his backpack was the button from the Monkees concert. Because everybody mm. bought that button and the t-shirts and everything. He had the button on his backpack with all of his other punk rock bands and all this stuff. And I said to Terry, I'm like, mm. did you go to the Monkees concert? And he just says, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you know, he went and he loved it. He probably went with his sister because he and his sister were like best friends. Ah. Uh, she's like th- two or three years older than him. So I bet you Kim took him with her. And But yeah, so he probably went and had a wonderful time and was never going to admit it. But hey, he had the button on his backpack. So no one he, forced it on him, right? Yeah. I mean, if he if he wanted to keep it quiet, he could have not had that button. But that cracked me up that even this kid who was a total skate punk was into the monkeys for yep. a time. Yeah, so there I am at Andrew's apartment, and he's scolding me for not bringing Last Train to Clarksville, and I'm a believer, but he pulls out headquarters, and he puts it on the turntable. <laughs> and I can't believe that his first time hearing You Told Me, and about my millionth time hearing it, he pointed out how You Told Me is basically Dr. Robert. You told me you never stray. You told me And I was like, oh my god! You didn't know. I did not notice until oh then. And not only that, but it really it occurred to me that because like the song is in A, but then when it's when it changes to D, you have the tax man bass line going oh, yeah. on. It's like all these things you said, you said sincerely. There's one for you now. Oh my god, and how, what um let's see, uh Bells of Rimney. Oh, what will you give me? Say the sad bells of Rimney. If I needed someone to love, you're the one that I'd be thinking of. When you listen to Bells of Rimney and If I Needed Someone back-to-back, oh yeah. And uh, how about uh, Sunny Girlfriend and... And uh, It's All Over Now. Yeah. Well, Bells of Remney, of course, is uh, birds, not monkeys, but, you know. And Last Train to Clarksville is basically paperback writer. Well, Boyce and Hart said as much. They said, (laughs) we we wrote this because we thought that paperback writer was about a last train, so we basically did our own paperback writer. Yeah. Yeah, there's all that going on. But yeah, you had so many advantages. Like, you had had ways to get to concerts. You had people to enjoy the monkeys with. I did not. Until I was in high school. Until my junior year of high school, yeah, actually. I mean, yeah. And I only I knew one person. Yeah, just Bridget. one. Bridget. To this day, one of my favorite people in the world. 
And she made me a cassette copy of the Head album and the stereo more of the Monkees, because I only had a mono copy. It was on one of the times we were on the phone for hours, just talking really deeply about the Monkees, and she was playing Head in the background, and she's like, wait a minute, you've never heard this album? And she stopped it immediately. She said, yeah, I'm not ruining anything for you. You're going to wait till you get this tape. Now, here's a thought. I mean, the fact is, you're not a very... I would not say that you're shy, but you are kind of reserved. You're not the kind of person who's going to go run screaming up to people, unless, of course, you know them or something. Yeah. So thinking about how popular the monkeys were with kids in my school, I wouldn't be surprised if there were kids who were watching the show on MTV and digging the music, but just never brought it up in school like it was never something that anybody talked about oh i would bring you. it up but nobody would be like monkeys yeah you're on your own bub oh okay the only reason i knew about bridget i mean i was already starting to take a, a big liking to her because she and i were both reading the matt graining life in hell books <laughs> at the same time and she was a big kevin matthews fan and i'm like okay yeah i gotta hang around her more and just i heard her mention just not, I don't think she was even talking to me, but I heard her say the phrase Pisces, Aquarius, Capricorn, and Jones. I was like, wait, what did you it's just like, say? Ding. <laughs> so, I, was, I was like, I'm, I'm just making sure I, I'm, I heard, did you say Pisces? She said, yeah. And I was like, are you effing kidding me? It's like, you speak my language. <laughs> but Yeah, and that, and that was when the rumors were going around that she and I were really the same person. So, yeah. <laughs> but I don't know. That's, that's kind of weird that kids in your school i don't know grade school two different high schools i I found one person i could identify with just one i mean the monkey fandom was just kind of a short-lived thing for a lot of kids i think it was again just the thing of the moment because it was on mtv constantly and but of course i didn't know anybody in the moment they did you know they were doing shows locally so i mean like my two friends named susan both stuck with the monkeys at least for a time because i went to see concerts with both of them in 86 and 87 by 1989 i wasn't even speaking to one susan we had this big fight and didn't talk to each other for like two years and then the other susan i think had moved on to new kids on the block so that is something I totally did not get on board oh, with. Oh, God. So I would have gone to the concert by myself if I had to. But but yeah, a lot of the people I know who liked the Monkees in 86 and 87 moved on to other things. But I don't know. I think just when it comes to music, I'm an old soul. And the stuff that I liked back then, I still like. And Yeah, me too. There's, I mean, there's a lot of newer music. There's a lot of songs that do attract me. I mean, I've got on my iTunes songs from 2020, 2019, 2018, but... Yep, I have Billie Eilish on my iPod. And there's artists, yeah, like like her. Like, there are artists who are wonderful and people I really respect and people that I like hearing about, but nobody really gets in my heart and my soul and my mind like the monkeys the beatles the beach boys you know things like that just nothing Mm -hmm. else has stuck to me the way those bands have and i mean it's kind of funny because they're all music from before i was born (laughs) 
well, yeah, of course, because you're a couple of years older than me. So, yeah, I was even more not born yet. <laughs> and you're talking about how you still like the stuff you liked back then. It just makes me think of a former coworker that I had, and I know I told you about this. It was a reference librarian we hired at the library, just fresh out of college, just got his MLS, oh, I think. Oh, oh, oh you remember this. I don't remember how this brought up, but I'm sure I was always talking about the Beatles, because they still do. They're still my all-time favorites ever, ever, ever. But yeah, this guy said to me, yeah, when I was in college, I went through a Beatles phase too. Because I was in college at the time. See, we can line <laughs> up so many people who started a Beatles phase in 1964, 65, 66. Yep. And 50 plus years later, they still haven't yep that phase yep this is a part of your life it's in your skin it's in your dna yep. it's just a part of you that is undeniable and has been that way for a very long time and really you know just thinking about it just about everything i have almost everything i have in my life you could trace it all the way back to that silver eagle commercial <laughs> seriously I would never, you never would have been part of my life. This dog that just walked uh, walked on the microphone cable wouldn't have been part of well, my yeah, life. yeah, because you know? the monkeys led you to the Beatles, which led you to the Beach Boys. I mean, it's that kind of that butterfly yep. effect where, yep. well, it's like for me that I might not have you if it weren't for an 8-track tape that my father put in my hands when I was 10 years old. Lucky that you. had God Only Knows on it. Yeah. But... The idea of the monkeys and being 14, that it just feels like everybody that I've met, regardless of how old they are at the time, somehow got into the monkeys when they were 14 or around there. 12, which 12, is around there. 12, 13, 14, whatever. <clears throat> and when you go to see a monkeys concert, whether it was in 1986, whether it's in... 2012, 2016, whatever. A great thing about those shows as opposed to other people that we go to see is that everybody is 14. Hmm. You've got old women who might come into the theater using a walker. They are dancing in the aisle. Yeah, you can see them be 14. You can see them scream. I mean, even without Davey there, they're screaming, because you know? Because it's still... Mickey. Yeah. And it's still Mike. People had crushes is, on Mike. <laughs> and the thing is, this is not something that no longer happens. Because, like, if you go, like, case in point, like, the Zilch podcast, like, there are teenagers in that damn Facebook group because they're getting into this stuff, too. Still, to this day, like, 54 years after the show debuted. Well, it's because the show captured them at a moment in time that you can watch the show and see these guys when they were in their 20s like they're captured in crystal or something when i started watching the show in 1986 i'm watching guys on the show who were only a couple years older than me yeah when you go to see them in concert you think for a moment okay i'm screaming for people who are like 40. like you knew that as a fact but it still didn't feel like that. Like, you kind of still felt like you were screaming at 20-year-olds. Do you get what I'm saying? It's like, you still had the TV monkeys and the monkeys from the album covers in your head. And the fact That's... that they were in front of you as 40-year-old men 
who were like fathers and on their second marriages and everything. Like, second? It was a long time ago they were on their second marriages. At that, I'm saying in 1986. <laughs> In 1986. They were still on only their second marriages back then? Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I didn't realize that. I thought yeah. they had already been like 18 times married by then. Yeah, but... <laughs> okay, well, uh, yeah, I, think, I Mickey, think Mickey and his current wife, they've been together a while now. They've been together a long time, and I think they're good. I don't think Mike's allowed to marry anybody anymore. I think that, like, they won't let him. Okay. <laughs> because he had three tries, and none of them worked. <laughs> Peter... Did he ever get married? I don't know. <laughs> or was he kind of like one of those hippie kind of people? I, he who's... may have had like hippie kind of weddings. I'm not sure. I mean, he was with, he had relationships with different and, women. He, he did and, have offspring, right? And had, yeah. Okay. I thought he had kids. Okay. And then uh, Davy, I think, was married three times. I th- at least, yeah. But going back to my point, it's like, okay, I'm 14 and I'm screaming at 40-year-old men who are like around my dad's age and but in my head they're still like 22 <laughs> that's another thing all these people that i'm fans of they're around my dad's age they're my parents age uh, my dad's older than all of them by a tiny bit but they're like my parents age and why are my parents so freaking different from all of them these are your generation people i mean why why are you so, well you know? the thing is for what it's <laughs> worth i think your parents in general i think people like the guys who ended up in the monkeys are more the anomaly than the norm i mean even my parents were a little bit different in that i mean they didn't get married until let's see my mom was 25 and my dad was 24 yeah my parents were 23 and 20. my mom had moved into an apartment with two of her girlfriends like, she didn't get married right from her father's house, like a lot of women did. And my dad had been in the Navy and had been living on his own. So, you know, they were a little bit older and a little more independent than a lot. Like, I think a lot of people were only just starting to do that at that time. But And it just boggles my mind how, like, there's a literally a four-day age difference between your mother and my mother... And your well, mother was your mother made it a point to watch the Sullivan Show in February 1964. Yeah, but she still but she still had to talk her father into yeah. letting her do that. My so. mother would never be caught dead doing that. But again, my grandparents and your grandparents weren't necessarily cut from the same cloth. Yeah. And again, I think young people weren't as young back then as they are now. That is so true. I think people married younger. College was not an option for for most people until into the 60s. So you had more people who graduated from high school and either went into the military or they went right into a job. Not working at McDonald's or folding sweaters, but like yeah. you graduated from high school. Maybe you took a little bit of time off to have parties or go on a vacation with your family. And then by like July or August... You were wearing a suit and sitting in an office Yeah. at 18 meanwhile, years old. Meanwhile, here we are in our 40s and we still play with Legos. And wear tie-dye and, I mean, what did I say is my power suit? Chuck Taylor's jeans and a tie-dye t-shirt. Yep, yep. But, and I, I wear jeans and a t-shirt to work. But that's the thing. I mean, when your parents came of age, 
it was a very different world and a very different mindset. And, you know, when you look at the guys who were in the monkeys, Davy had grown up either performing or being a jockey in training. So Davy had professional aspirations since he was a young teenager, mm-hmm. which is pretty common in England, because if you're not going to university, you kind of get into the working world when you're like 15 or 16. Mickey had been a child actor. He grew up seeing acting as not like some big fair Hollywood fairy tale, but it's the job that you get up every day and do. Like dad going to work, meaning dad didn't go to an insurance office. Dad went to a studio and put on a costume. That was his father's job. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when Mickey wasn't doing acting, he was working as a mechanic. Yep. And going to college to study to be an architect. And then you had Mike and Peter who were kind of pursuing a bit of a dream, but it was hard. Peter was washing dishes at a nightclub while trying to make it as a folk singer. Yep. (laughs) You know, and Mike had a wife and baby to support on very little income. Mm -hmm. And if it weren't for a couple lucky breaks he would have had to go take a job in an office somewhere yep. so that they wouldn't starve to death. So, Or maybe re-enlist in the Air Force. So it's like they all knew the value of work. And I think that kind of comes out of like that, you know, the post-World War II sort of thing. I mean, not every baby boomer had this <clears throat> jaded suburban life and went to college. A lot of them, you know, they graduated from high school and you got a job. Yep. And unfortunately, that has not carried on because a lot of young people can't do that. That is so true. And survive. But getting back to the whole gateway drug, monkeys being the gateway drug, what do you get your biggest fix from? What drug do you get the biggest fix from now? Well, you give your answer while I think. For me, I would have to say probably the Beatles. Probably the Beatles, because I always go back to that. They're like probably the number one thing in the world that I want to have every single thing that they ever did. I want to go over to number three Abbey Road NW8 and dig into those vaults and listen to every single damn sound on those tapes. I want to hear it all. I want it all. I want to suck it in. I want to learn how to play like them. And I want to learn to write like them. The Beatles for the best trip. And maybe the Beach Boys for a cheap high. Oh, don't say that. No, no, simply because, like, you take the... Like, for example, like, the Beatles, you could listen to any Beatles album and it's going to be... It's basically a greatest hits album. You listen to, say, Pet Sounds. Yeah, that thing is so effing deep. But then you go over to say MIU album. You're not going to have a religious experience well, with that. You're going to have you're it's basically like, "Hey, it's a Beach Boys thing. Let me listen to well, it." Okay, there. I disagree because again, going back to how I said that I'm more of a song-oriented person than an album person. I mean, you know, there are some Beach Boys albums that I don't even know the names of all the songs on the track like I well, don't some of them you really don't want to know no so. but even even like their earlier stuff like i can't rattle off the, the titles that are on all summer long or shut down volume two like i just don't know because with 
especially the Beach Boys, I've always cherry-picked things. Going back to the 80s, I would make my own tapes. Then I burned my own CDs. Now I have my own playlists on iTunes. So, I mean, I've always just taken this, like, here's the stuff that I like, and I'm not going to listen to the stuff I don't like. I don't sniff the spoiled milk. <laughs> like, if somebody says, oh, this album really isn't all that great, I'm not going to listen to it. Oh, I will because a lot of times I disagree. Like, yeah. for example, I don't think the Birds 1973 reunion okay. album I, is, okay. like, as bad as everybody says. I think it's actually decent. But anyway... But what I like does change. I mean, the fact, like, the Beach Boys channel on SiriusXM two summers ago, that introduced me to some stuff that I had never really given much attention to. Because you didn't want to sniff the spoiled milk. Yeah, or just stuff like, I had never really paid much attention to Carl and the Passion So Tough. But on the Beach Boys channel, like, I listened to You Need a Mess of Help to Stand Alone. And I'm like, yeah, this really is a damn good song. I mean, the Beach Boys are always going to be the end-all, be-all, go-to of everything. And that is how it's been since I was about three years old. And my dad bought his first copy of the Endless Summer 8-track. I say first copy because those tapes were played so much that they wore out and died and we had to replace them. I mean, I guess if you're saying what has the monkeys led me to that still is important today probably just the continuing pursuit of learning about the 60s going into the 70s and just kind of what it all what it all means and what can we take from it like how i've learned to not be so blinded by the nostalgia and say, oh, what a wonderful time. Because you know, people say to me, don't you wish you had lived during the 60s? No. no. The 60s were not a good time hey, for women. <laughs> I, I am especially glad I wasn't around to see 1968 happen. I mean, there's just, I mean, a lot of people who talk about like, oh, the 60s were so wonderful. The 50s were so wonderful. They're usually white people yeah. who live in the suburbs. Yeah, ask a black person how great, yeah. the, how great things were person, in the 50s. A black person, a Latinx person, a gay person. Oh, man, yeah. I mean... Yeah, those times were not wonderful for everybody. I mean, they were mostly wonderful for privileged people. But there's still a lot we can learn from those eras. And there is good stuff. There were things that were very innovative and very different. And people did take artistic risks that they had never taken before. And unfortunately, a lot of that momentum was lost. But I think over time in different eras it was picked like the thread was dropped but maybe 10-15 years later it was picked up again and continued in a different way a lot of the artists who are really big now you know Lizzo Billie Eilish people like that I think they kind of continue the thread oh yeah of no just doubt innovation and not being afraid to be different and to say things that are on their mind. I think that's definitely a lesson from the 60s. But yeah, I think it's just kind of that opening that door to that history and all that it has to offer is something that I've really grown to value. So of course you have a much more meaningful answer than I do. Me, it's just, give me more Beatles, give me more Beatles, give me well, more Beatles. I mean, but to be honest, to be honest, <laughs> yeah. that's something too, because... Like I said, it wasn't like I dove into the deep end of the Beatles pool all at once. That 
it's almost like little gifts that I unwrapped over the course of many years. I mean, there was stuff that I never, you know, knew about until we started going to Beetlefest, which was kind of awesome for me to have Beetle experiences in an environment like that, where you're surrounded by people who get it. And everybody is going to be sitting up at 2 a.m. saying you can't do that. I just feel like there's still more to learn and still more to experience. But the Beatles story is still not over. I mean, the Beatles, there's much more to the Beatles. I mean, the fact is, like, look how often we listen to the Beatles channel. Like, every Every day. (laughs) Every day. Even we have everything... We have more than what they play on that station uh, in our collection, but we still listen to it. Yeah. Well, actually, no, I shouldn't say that because they play, like, the post-breakup stuff, too. We don't have all the post-breakup stuff. And they also play, like, associated things and live yeah. versions and stuff like that. But I don't think there could ever be a Monkeys channel because you could get through the entire catalog in a day, including their solo stuff. Yeah, but it's still something I'd like to see them do just a short-term thing because you could have lots of stuff, like lots of things that influence them and that they in turn influenced. Hmm. Like you could get Andy Partridge from XTC could talk for hours about the monkeys. (laughs) Yep, and you get some Adam Schlesinger songs in there, one of which was recorded by the monkeys and uh, New Monkeys. Just to give you an idea of uh, how deep we can go into our little discussions, uh, the raw footage of our little chat about the monkeys clocked in at two hours and 48 minutes. I was hoping to get it down to under an hour, maybe even 45 minutes, but... There was just too much that I could not justify taking out, so that, that's why it went on for so long. But hey, since Autobiography of a Schnook is essentially a monthly podcast for now, well, with an exception coming up soon, um, I figured eh, I could have a long episode now and then. Also, I, I apologize for the weird sound quality. For some reason, there was a 60 hertz buzz that kind of started up and stopped at various times. Uh, might have been a bad USB cable or something, but I had to do some filtering in the sound to get rid of it. Oh, well. Um, oh, you know what? Now I remember. Uh, the uh, name of that Dan Rather book that I mentioned before, I couldn't think of the title. Ah, it's called What Unites Us. Uh, I, I was never necessarily a fan of Dan Rather or anything. I didn't make it a point to watch him on TV or anything, but I just heard so many people rave about the book that I just decided to check it out, see what it was all about. Uh, but anyway, that, my friends, is the end of chapter 27. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. And I should probably disclaim that music and sounds used in this episode are properties of their individual copyright holders, and they are used for the purposes of commentary and or review. Um, Admittedly, some of the music and some of those sounds are indeed my own, but for the others, no infringement is intended. By the way, friends, you can reach me electronically in various ways, such as email. The address is autobio at schnookpodcast.com. Twitter and Instagram, my handle is uh, schnookpodcast. And there is an autobiography of a schnook page at Facebook. So please feel free to reach out to me with any comments about the podcast, suggestions for future episodes, or maybe you're thinking, oh man, you know, I have my own stories that I'd like to tell, but 
Uh, I don't really want to dedicate my time to do an entire podcast. Well, if you want to be a guest and tell your own story at uh, this podcast, hey, drop me a line. I'm sure there'd be people who love to hear. Also, if you could do me a favor and please leave a review at iTunes or Apple Podcasts or whatever they're calling it today, I would love to have more listeners and reviews are a good way to build um, listenership. Oh, there's no red line under that. So yeah, I guess that's a listenership is a word. Autobiography of a schnook is a part of the Fab Four IT podcast network, along with other podcasts, such as the Atari 7800 Homebrew podcast, Pie Factory podcast, which just released a new episode a few days ago, by the way, and coming in 2021, Modern Stone Age Rockcast. Of course, many thanks to Lisa for her ongoing support and her encouragement, and of course, in this case, her participation in this episode. As always, my friends, I'd like to remind you that the good goes around, and I sure hope a lot of it goes around to you for the rest of 2020 so that we can have a much better 2021. All the best, my friends. Agents Mulder and Scully, yep, the same characters from the X-Files and voiced by David Duchovny and... Oh, shit, what's her name? Oh, who's that X-Files person? Oh, let's see. Wikipedia X-Files. Is it Jillian something or other? Jillian Anderson? Is that her name? Jillian Anderson, yeah. Okay, so back to the script. Uh, 